in the Bible, pie is... Uh, Bible. Did you say the Bible? Sorry? Bible. In the Bible, yeah. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're reading Going Postal, a moist book that nonetheless has my stamp of approval. <laughs> and our two guests are writer, magician, science communicator and Australia's honest con man, Nicholas J. Johnson. Welcome, Nick. Hello. Thanks for having me. And comedian, screenwriter and star of Stage and Screen, Lawrence Lung. Welcome, Lawrence. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting for us. We've only had two guests once before. So thank you both for joining us. It's very exciting. I was just thinking three of my favorite people in the world and I get to talk about a brilliant book with them. This is going to be a treat. I'm very excited about this. I'm with two of my favorite people in the world, but I'm not telling you which two. <laughs> and the mind games begin. Oh no! Oh, I'm gonna have to fight in the parking lot, and that's oh. not, but socially distantly. <laughs> uh, now I'm imagining it's like the dance fighting in, like you know, the bad film clip where they're holding hands, but they never really get that close to each other. Yeah, uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, uh, that's probably for the best. Let's not talk about music videos from very long ago. Let's let's talk about our guests. Nick, you've read Going Postal before, haven't you? Yeah, I read it when it first came out, um, or a couple of years after maybe, uh, because of my interest in con artists and scams. And so I sought it out because it was a con artist book and remembered enjoying it at the time. But then I put it down and I, I don't think I read another Terry Pratchett book until now. So it's been over 10 years and, uh, it was reading the same book, which was the last one I read. <laughs> <laughs> Had you read any other Pratchett's before going postal? I did, yeah. My my mother was a teacher librarian and she brought home The Colour of Magic when I was, again, shortly after it came out in Australia. So, like, I was maybe about nine or ten and just presented it to me as if this is the perfect book for you. This is This is yours and you should treasure it. And I remember reading the first chapter and just not getting it at all. And just <laughs> tossing it aside, uh, and just going, what is this? What, what is this garbage? And not having any interest at all in it. Um, but then I read the, the Gnome trilogy and I read the Johnny books and guards, 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 two guards or three guards? Yeah. Two guards. Two guards. Two guards yeah, with exclamation marks. Witches and the last continent con, a couple of others. Yeah. So I've, I've got some Terry Pratchett knowledge. I, I know a bit and we're going to see whether I can hold up against the experts. Well, I wouldn't call us that. No. And, I mean, the the point of this podcast is not to be all-knowing about all things Terry Pratchett. It's to have an intriguing and entertaining discussion. Yeah. And I think both of you are going to bring that to the table. Sure. But but you've got to win the intriguing conversation. Like that. Oh, yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. That's all I'm really yeah. here for. I didn't really think about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's fair. Lawrence, this is not your first Pratchett either. You have read at least one before this, haven't you? 
Yeah, it feels like it's stored away in the mists of time. During childhood, I did read Mort. If you ask me to tell you what it was about, I don't think I can remember it. If you ask me anything about the Discworld stuff, I, I seem to know little bits and pieces. And I don't know if they're from fragments from different books that perhaps I've read, but um, I can't say at all that I am a Terry Pratchett aficionado. I think just through pop culture and through having friends who are the greatest nerds on the planet, I seem to know a lot. <laughs> it's like um, having Simpsons going through osmosis into your veins. Um, I know a lot of people who <laughs> talk in Pratchett or um, Douglas Adams type speak. So um, they're the circles I revolved around at university and high school. Reading this particular book was kind of a nostalgia hit. I felt like it was super familiar to me, and I just totally loved this book. Having said that, technically I didn't read it because I decided I wanted to listen to the audiobook version of this because I wanted to listen to essentially a two-and-a-half-hour Monty Python sketch with Incredible voices and accents. Um, I can't remember the name of the chap who did the narration, but it was a stellar effort. Was it Stephen Briggs? I think that's who it was, yes. Yeah. He does all of the unabridged readings of the Pratchett book. Or not all of them, but most of them. It's a hefty taking on, because there's a lot of characters in this one. You know, he was doing the whole plethora of English accents, Scottish accents, and there was a bit of French and German thrown in there. I think the golems were German. Um, oh, that's really? his interpretation. Huh. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Or Austrian. They were very um, Terminator Schwarzenegger sound. Oh, yeah. Which is entirely appropriate, I thought. Yeah. You know, they are very much like Terminators. But the the interesting thing was, as we were getting closer and closer to this uh, podcast, I, I realized I, I was looking at the time left, <laughs> and then I, I sped up his reading a bit more, <laughs> because you know how you can change the speed on podcasts. <laughs> and I, <laughs> and for the, the final stretch of the book, I listened to last night, and I have to confess, I was drifting <laughs> in and out of sleep. <laughs> so, it's... Much like um, the experience of watching David Lynch's Dune as a child, it was a very dreamlike experience. <laughs> so this podcast um, is, is, if it was a quiz, this podcast, I think I'd lose the quiz. <laughs> no, it's like an exam period. Like as you get closer and closer to the exam, to listen back to the lectures like faster and faster and faster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, look, thankfully, yeah. as far as I know, Sting will not show up in his underpants <laughs> Uh, in the course of this podcast, oh, um, no, I mean, not no. that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, he looks great in but those we promised weird wings, them. and his underpants do have wings on them, kind of actually in June. Yeah. So it is sort of on brand. They're not gold though, so I don't know. He's nearly there. He's nearly there. Yeah, like, that got more there. relevant as I went through that rambling anecdote, as <laughs> um, which is not usually how it goes. Well, uh, we should get into the book. Let's begin as we always do with a reading of the blurb. Moist von Lipwig is a con artist and a fraud and a man faced with a life choice. Be hanged or put Ank Morpork's ailing postal service back on its feet. It's a tough decision, but he's got to see that the mail gets through come rain, hail, sleet, dogs, the post office workers' friendly and benevolent society, the evil chairman of the Grand Trunk Semaphore Company, and a midnight killer. And don't forget the legendary Mrs. Cake. Getting a date with Adora Bell Deerheart would be nice, too. Maybe it'll take a criminal to succeed where honest men have failed. Or maybe it's a death sentence either way. Or perhaps there's a shot at redemption in the mad world of the male, waiting for a man 
who's prepared to push the envelope. Okay, so first of all, mine is shorter and it doesn't mention Mrs. Cake, so it seems like my blurb is listening to the post office rules while yours is not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the blurb from the original edition, so they are always a little bit longer than the more recent ones. Mm. But the Collector's Library edition, which is what I've got the print copy of, which I actually read, has a super short blurb. It's only one sentence long. Go on then. What, what is it? Oh, well, what it's actually two sentence? sentences. I, I've led you astray slightly there. But it's just, uh, Moist von Ludwig is a con artist and a fraud and a man faced with a life choice. Be hanged or put the postal service back on its feet. Tough decision. That's it. Oh. Mm-hmm. But it, where's the other cool bits? <laughs> like, that's... I mean, look, if you're buying the collector's edition, I feel like you already know what you're getting into, right? That short blurb is very much the TV guide you know, blurb that you'd see in a TV listing. <laughs> Except accurate, I suppose. And it would be enough to get me to read it, I reckon. Yeah? Yeah. It is a good hook, though. Con artist being put in charge of a major public institution. That's a good premise. Yeah. We're all silently agreeing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess also the joke in the premise is that, you know, working as a postal worker is that a fate worse than death. Um, <laughs> oh, rough. I have some friends who, who used to work. Actually, I think one of them still does for Australia Post. They seem to enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, it seems like a good Depends job. Depends on where in Australia Post you're working, I guess. At the moment, they're kind of overworking their postmen a little bit too much. Like, they, I've had them come up to my door at, like, 6 o'clock, and I'm like, you should be at home not delivering mail at this time. But, yeah. Wasn't there a thing where they were... People, just random people who worked for Australia Post were just asked, hey, would you mind delivering some mail on the weekend? We're not going to pay you any extra, but just here's a, <laughs> here's a sack of mail. Would you mind dropping it off on your way home? And like, no hear about extra this. money. I think you could take it as, it was something to do with like some holiday leave exchange thing. So it's, it's an insane, yeah, it was the way in which they were running the post office in this book was like, not as insane as the real post office yeah. in Australia yeah. right now. Or in America. Yeah. And it hasn't been a stellar year yeah. for post offices. But we'll, I think we'll get to that because there are a few questions from our listeners about how mm. this interacts with our experience of the real world. And it's interesting that this is a, a book written in the UK about the postal service that's clearly modelled on the Royal Mail. Mm. And yet we've it really resonates with us here in Australia and I think with American listeners and readers as well. So... Yeah, I, I think everybody has a similar, at least, you know, in the Anglophone world, has a similar kind of experience of, of the post. Yeah, and I could absolutely do probably like an hour on Australia Post, but we should probably oh. get into the book. No, let's talk more about the politics of Australia Post. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there in the questions. But we should, look, uh, before we get into the main plot, I, I do want to just talk about the prologues. There's two prologues in this book, uh, and they're both very, very short. They're only a page or two each. And the first one seems like, what is this all about? There's like some dude under the ocean watching ships go by and it's 9,000 years ago. And I, I sort of vaguely remembered what this was about, but I didn't really remember how that character fit into the narrative because it's been quite a long time since I last read it. So I was like, Oh, this is intriguing. And then the second one, I, I was very much across. I knew what was going on there. We, we see the death of someone working on one of the clacks. And th- this is the book that really sort of puts the clacks into Ankh-Morpork in a big way. Like, they've mentioned a few times in previous books to this, but this is the one that really talks about how they've become a big thing. And they're, they're a series of semaphore towers. And I, the thing I love most about this is that it sounds... I think there's more than four. What? 
Well, the bad joke about semaphore. It's more like oh, semi- was semi- se- a semaphore would only be two, like a half. Yeah. Four, so oh, it's that. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> I completely derailed that, but yeah, it does actually put it into context that Clax being part of Ankhmore Fork. You're absolutely right. And there's hundreds of these towers. And I was just going to say, the thing I love about it is that it sounds like a kind of fantasy equivalent of the internet, which is what it is intended mm. to be. But it also is based on real semaphore towers. Like, they really did use them in a very similar way. And my favourite book that this happens in is uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, where one of the major plots in the book involves basically hacking the semaphore tower. I mean, he doesn't hack it, but he sends a false message via a semaphore tower to ruin one of the people he's getting revenge on. Spoilers. Yeah, but it's great. Yeah, in the UK, they had, uh, it was called the Optical Telegraph. And it basically, it was because uh, stock market results were being shuttled back and forth across the, the country in this kind of coded fashion. It meant that people could potentially get stock market results on one side of the country before other people did, if they could sort of, you know, get in early. And, and they were basically doing similar to what they talk about doing in the, in the book, in real life. It was in, in France in the 18th century. Isn't there a thing about like being slightly close to, and this is going to make me sound like Jen from the IT crowd looking at the box that I think is the internet, but like, isn't there like a thing where like if you're slightly closer to like the cables of the internet or something, you can get like microseconds of data earlier than, oh. than other places. And so like, the, if you've got, yeah, so the high finance things, or is that like a thing from a crime show that was made up that I have remembered as fact? No, if you've got ADSL, the closer you are to the exchange, the faster internet speed you get. That's how it works. Yeah, so it's kind of like a similar thing, like being closer to... So, like, that con has been going for quite a while. Yeah. It's also the basis of the movie The Sting. That's Mm. the scam they're pulling in that film is... But with it's coming through in the Telegraph. They pretend that they're getting race results before anyone else because they know someone... You know, who's, who's in the know at the, the telegraph company when in reality they don't and they're just scamming the guy. And, but it's, a, it's, yeah, it's called the wire in, um, old timey con artist lingo. Is there any way to put underpants on that comment? Because then that's Sting entering the, the podcast in underpants. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Uh, he got in. He got in. Oh, no, that's, that's all right. You know who else gets in? And the fly screens up and everything. <laughs> you know who else gets in in chapter one, of course. <laughs> is the star of the book, new brand new character to the Discworld. This is the first book he appears in, but it's Mr. Moist von Lipwig. No, um, it's Albert Spangler. Except, mm. yes, at this point he's called Albert Spangler. Now, I wondered, is Albert Spangler any kind of reference to any famous con artists or any of the other aliases that we find out he has during the book? Did you spot any references to famous con artists in the book, you two? No. Oh, well... No, not really. I mean, like little minor references to various scams and, and real things that have happened, you know, like we mentioned, but I, I didn't recognize any names. Yeah. But to be honest, I was always under the impression that Pratchett just like chose names that sounded good and that were sometimes, you know, twists on, on, you know, classic, classical names, but he wasn't really one for sort of having a character who was, clearly like an analog for someone else or maybe i'm wrong and i just haven't been reading the books closely some people think that albert spangler's name is derived from the german spang which means dental braces so (laughs) clearly a con (laughs) artist he could have had big fake teeth because his whole thing about furniture and having a thing that's distinctive to make you notice him 
Yeah. That's right. Mm. Yes. That kind of fits in with something that happens in the second book that he's in. But we, let's not talk about that because we're here to talk about this book. The other thing that this opening sequence really reminds me of, and Liz, I'm sure you've thought about this, is the Shawshank Redemption. Because he's digging a hole in his cell where he's waiting to be hanged because he's been caught for all of the um, mm. scams that he's pulled and he's going to be hanged. Um, and there's that great bit where he, you know, he digs out the hole with the spoon and then he gets to the end and there's a big rock in the way with a shiny spoon in front of it. <laughs> and they're just toying with him. Like, they know all the ways that someone might be able to escape and they offer this sort of illusion of hope. Which is a big theme, and I like that they sort of weave that through. Like, hope, is it a good thing, is it a bad thing? Which is also a theme of the Shawshank Redemption. Mm. But, yeah, the, the spoon was a nice touch, and the references to the other ones, um, the other prisoners trying to escape and being thwarted was a good one. Um, I just quickly say, um, when they reveal about like a third of the way through the book that he's only 26, I felt personally offended because I'm used to him being older than me and now he is younger than me. And I'm like, how dare you? <laughs> you, you literal child. So, um, <laughs> Well, I mean, Lawrence, your stage show and film sucker has a protagonist who is significantly younger than that. How They're like 18, is that right? Yeah, 18. And now Liz will have a conniption over that. Um, <laughs> how yeah. dare you? How, <laughs> how dare being, people being... be born? <laughs> does does that help? Like, do, are, are younger scam artists, like, is that a thing? Do people more likely to trust somebody who's younger? Yeah, I guess with um, the fiction that I was creating, it was the idea that no one would think that someone so young could fool them. Having said that, a lot of con artists, you know, from literature and also movies and folklore tend to be older gentlemen because they uh, have the experience behind them in terms of studying how human nature works. So, um, yeah, I just created mine because I like my, my character being younger because I thought that was a different spin on it. Mm. And then we've got, you know, Moist, who's also a bit younger and has had a whole string of aliases. And now is getting hanged, uh, or at least in his guise as Albert Spangler. Uh, and they don't know his real name, or so he thinks, because after he's hanged, he wakes up and he's not dead. Uh, he's in the office of the patrician, Lord Vetinari, who is the tyrant ruler of the city of Ankh-Morpork. The benevolent tyrant, we should say, even though he uses the, the phrase tyrant himself. Uh, and is given the choice, as we said in the blurb, he can either... You know, can walk out the door to freedom, which he checks and the door is a, you know, a bottomless pit. Or he can try and repair the uh, post office and get it back up and running. And he, he takes the offer. And then as soon as he's like sort of deposited outside, makes a run for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, until he's caught by his new parole officer, a golem named Mr. Pump, who I just look, I love Mr. Pump. Yeah, he is. Very lovable from an early stage, even though, like, we meet him bursting through a door in the middle of the night, which is not, um, yeah. I think, but, like, the image of him carrying Moist under one arm and, like, the, the beaten up bad horse that he's bought under the other arm just walking back to Angmorepork, I think, is going to stick with me for a, a very <laughs> long time. And that's sort of endearing. He's, the, he's got that commitment to his job. Yeah. The clamped horse. He's got, <laughs> he's got wheel, he's got <laughs> hoof clamps on him. It's great. <laughs> Pump as a character made me think about whether Pratchett wanted to write science fiction, but he had sort of success with fantasy, and so that was the genre. Because, like, reading it, it's clear, like, Pump is a robot. And Mm. there's references to, like, Asimov's laws and 
Mm. What does it mean to be human and what is free will? And it's explored in a very science fiction-y way. And throughout the book, I was like, oh, yeah, this that feels like science fiction. You know, the clax feels very science fiction-y, even though it's, mm. you know... And they're at, and he's, he's just... He, I'd forgotten how dismissive he is about to the concept of magic, just in general. That just made me think, oh, maybe he's like not actually a big fan of fantasy. Maybe he wants to be writing science fiction instead, because it's that sort of character. I've got Asimov, um, Golem, Minim, I can't read my handwriting, but Asimov, Golem on my notes as well. So that's one for the bingo square for me. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I don't know that he necessarily wanted to write science fiction rather than fantasy, but he certainly approaches it in a very science fiction way. Mm. You know, he uses the fantasy as a lens to sort of examine our world through this sort of overlay of, of fiction. Uh, and that's a very science fiction-y thing to do, to have that sort of social commentary. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what Pratchett is doing in this book, is commentary on our world using the genre of fantasy. But it is exactly how sci-fi looks at uh, consequences of what's happening in the modern day and sort of extrapolating from it. The other thing that he adds is just this layer of constant humour <laughs> throughout the entire thing. I just sort of love that. And especially when it comes to um, looking at golems and, and um, pump, like that is hands down a reference to Terminator and Asimov and, you know, <laughs> right down to the laws to how Pump speaks. And I think mainly it's because I was listening to the audiobook and, and Pump was definitely Austrian in his sounding like you know, Schwarzenegger. <laughs> but um yeah, it's I, I agree with you totally. It's there's a, a real sci fi undercurrent to to this book. On the topic of the humor and the wordplay that Pratchett does so well, I really enjoyed when he like rethreatens Moist if he doesn't want to work at the post office, he can do the, the sizzle two step and then drum knot whispers in his ear. He's like, I mean the hemp fandango. And I was like, I don't know what a sizzle is. So I looked it up and it is another type of plant that can be used to make rope. So I was like, it's still accurate, even though it's not the common phrase. And I thought that was kind of wonderful. Yeah. This is a book where the fact that Pratchett always did a lot of research for his books really shines through. And I mean, you see it in a lot of his books, but I think in this one, he probably had a great deal of fun researching a lot of stuff in this book. Mm. And yeah, the, the Terminator references start real early when Vetinari tells Moist that Mr. Pump will never stop. He doesn't need to yes. eat. He doesn't need to sleep. I mean, that's a line. It's almost a line from Terminator. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and so he takes the job, obviously. He doesn't really have any choice and goes to the post office one of the things that I love about this is we get a lot of Moist's point of view and mm. there's not that many characters where we get a really deep look into their mind in Pratchett's work. Like there's a, a lot of his books have multiple kind of main characters. Um, Sam Vimes, who's the leader of the watch is a bit of an exception. Like we, we have so many books starring him and he's the main protagonist in, in most of them um, that, you know, we, we've got a pretty good idea how his brain works and there's a few other characters we get to know pretty well. But Moist we get to know pretty well, I think, pretty quickly. What are your impressions of Moist as a, a con artist and as a character? I liked that he was, uh, when you want to create a con artist character, the, the first thing people do is to say, oh, what's the tricky scam that we can have them demonstrate? Like, we'll have them pulling off a scam, and the act of pulling off this scam will demonstrate to the audience or the reader that this is a con artist. So before you know anything about them, you'll see them swindling someone in the street. 
And it's, it's the, you know, it's the way that it's always done. And in this, he doesn't really, like, Pratt, doesn't really go into a lot of details about the kinds of scams that he pulled in the past. He just goes, you know, he, he there's sort of references to it. Um, mm. but it's not a series of scams. It, and, and because of that, he just goes straight for the character and goes, what sort of person would be a successful con artist by the time they're 25? Like Ugh. what sort of person would become, do you know what I mean? Like not, not sort of who is my con artist, but like how does someone end up a con artist at 25 and, you know, with a rope around their neck? Um, and, and, and he brings to it rather than kind of saying, oh, he's, you know, cunning and savvy and clever. It's like he's kind of naive and he's a bit of a coward, you know, like he's, he's, he, 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 reason why he scams people is because he, he wants to do the cheeky, you know, he wants, he wants to avoid the conflict and wants to avoid the circumstances and avoid the situation. And that just comes straight through, you know, the trying to dig his way out and going, Oh, Oh, you knew about it the whole time and realizing, Oh, I've, you know, do I run through the door or do I take the deal? Oh, I take the deal. Of course, you know, like, so he's just a guy who's always running and hiding and thinking that he's one step ahead when often he's not. And I thought that was a really great. It was a really accurate way of portraying a con artist that I hadn't seen before. At the risk of sounding like one of the the landladies that brings him fruit in prison, like, <laughs> do you think he's actually doing all this to protect himself because he's got quite a sad backstory in that he's lost both his parents presumably at quite a young age and was raised by quite an indifferent grandfather who was more focused on raising dogs than his own grandson. And presumably Moise had to set off on his own quite young to become an accomplished con artist by the time he's 25. Um, and so he tries on all these different characters and there are lots of little hints around that he's, he feels vulnerable when he is moist. <laughs> Sorry, but like, well done on Terry Pratchett for using that word in a way that's tolerable. But, um, like he regularly mentions that he feels a bit vulnerable and naked without all of his accoutrements. And so I'm just wondering if perhaps like I'm, he does clearly enjoy it. Like he loves being a con artist, like it's not just a protective mechanism, but also I wonder if part of it is like the characters insulate him from the world and from himself, because it is kind of a story about, you can't tell if he's like wanting to be a bad guy and failing or if it's the other way around because he like, he prides himself on never doing violence. And so he gets quite a shock when he gets the actuarial amount of people that he's probably caused the death of. And he hates that. And it's like a mm. wake up call. But later on, he's like constantly pulled to like going back to his old way of life. But I can't quite tell if it's like he wants to like be bad and is fighting against that or if he wants to be good or if it's something else. So it's not that simple. Yeah, that's my, my fruit lady thing. I, yeah, I see what you're saying there. You're so, it's, it's like, um, the whole idea of moist is the fact of, is he, and also the whole book is that, is there such thing as free will or uh, is your nature set in stone? Uh, sorry to make a golem type pun. Um, no, but seriously, will the golems become slaves forever or can they become freemen or free people? Will Moist, um, have a redemption story, become a, a good guy or will he rely and fall back on his skill sets in order to renew, you know, the, the postal service and, uh, you know, can he succeed against all odds using his, you know, wit and guile? 
what's interesting is the fact, and it's kind of what, you know, Nick was saying with, we don't really see his previous scams before the story starts. And which is, it's a wonderful take on the whole sort of con artist thing. I'm thinking of it in terms of like, say superheroes will hear origin stories and we'll see, or always see origin stories in, in, in flashback. And then we'll see how they learned to become a hero and how they got their skills. But in this, he's already got his skills by the time he's 25. And he's, he's now down on his luck at the very start of, you know, his first entrance into the Discworld novels. So it's almost like the Christopher Nolan movies with Batman starting at the Batman begins when he's down on his luck and he, you know, he, he's old and he's, he's frail. Or James Bond in, I think it was Quantum of Solace or one of, one of the. Oh, the shit one. Yeah. One of, one of the later, um, James Bond films. I don't think it's that one. It's a, a different one. Um, where he's, you know, not quite at full power. And so I feel like what's really great in this is that he's vulnerable for the entire book. Mm. He's, he's not in control the entire time. And that's a great, um, place for a con artist to be in, in fiction is the fact that he is not in control. Um, and then he has to decide whether to use his skill sets in order to, to achieve what he needs to do. Mm. Mm. And he also never really gets control either. He has some success, but there, there isn't. Because I was really hoping the whole way through, because I couldn't remember. I hope there's not a twist in the end. Like, I hope there's not a sort of moment where it turns out that, you know, that it wasn't, you know, something we thought was a big deal isn't actually a big deal because he was in control the whole time. Like, ultimately, the story is resolved because of his actions, but it's mm. never quite, or it's it it's not all within his control. And it's a lot of it is just him kind of, you know, giving up and accepting that he can't control everything. It's a real stressful read. Yeah. So it's kind of like the character is a con artist, but the story is not a con genre story. So there is no con twist in that way. But our central character is a con artist, even though mm. the story isn't a con story. Mm. Is the person he was conning himself all along about who he truly is? No. But that's, no. that's something, no. that's something that comes back with real con artists. A lot of the con artists who are really successful actually believe the stories they make up and they actually believe the characters, you know, like Frank Abagnale Jr. A lot of them, you know, they, they would go out and they'd really sort of take on these roles and believe they could really do it. There's a guy called, uh, Frank DeMara who would just pretend to be a doctor ended up like operating on people in the high seas during the Korean War and he just believed he was a doctor. He just needed to go and check his notes and he'd go and read the textbook and come and do the surgery. So that kind of thing of like someone going, well, actually, no, we're going to strip away all of the things you're pretending to be, all of the things you're assuming you know and all the things you about yourself and you're going to put just you in this circumstance. What are you going to do about it and not these fictional characters that you've created? I think that's that's, yeah, really interesting. I was wondering if he's kind of like a Casanova character without the boning in some ways as well, because he was like a bit of a dabbler in a lot of different fields. Like he was able to present himself as an expert in a lot of different ways from the limited reading I've done about him. And that seems like there's a bit of a sense of that around Moist, but yeah. Yeah. The word Mm. Casanova and Moist should not go together. (laughs) Is Moist charming? (laughs) I, I think, think he, he is. can be. Yeah. Well, okay. Can he what? charm? I mean, I was charmed by him, but do you think he, because throughout the book, he tries to charm people and fails a lot. You know, he tries to charm them to get something and he fails to 
to do so throughout the book. You know, mm. is it because perhaps he's coming up against a lot of strong personalities in this book? However, because like when he comes up against a weaker personality, say we haven't got into the gang yet, and I'm really excited about that. But jumping forward a bit, like when I'd argue that Stanley is a weaker personality in some ways and a, and a strong one in other ones, but he easily charms Stanley because he can see what will win him over. But when it's coming up against someone like Veterinary or Adora Bell, who have very strong personalities, or the or the grocer, um, he has no chance at all. Mm. And then even like Grote, who has quite a strong personality in his mm. own way, but is like has his own motivations. He doesn't really win him over that well either until he finds his lever, as he points out. So people can sort of see through him, but I don't, don't know if that's because the characters we get focus on are ones that it's kind of like, you know, like the Jedi mind trick only works on people who are weak minded. But I, I think he does charm those people. Like I think Grote does accept him. He's got this weird line where he sort of becomes genuine. He's fighting with himself this whole time. You know, he's got this talent with people. And the way that you have that talent is you present yourself the way that you think they want you to be. And that's then they'll like you. But what happens to him sort of through the book is that he starts becoming that person because mm. he starts to doubt the legitimacy or, or the okayness of what he's done before. And I think he really does. Like, I mean, I think uh, Adorabelle really does fall for him. And she is charmed by him. I mean, there's a bit where, you know, they're having their spiky back and forth. And he says, oh, this is, it's a game. And you can see, like, the kind of things she says are clearly, like, this is her version of flirting, which is, you know, vicious put-downs. But it's clear that that's what's going on. Or at least I felt like that was. And that that was why I liked their relationship so much, because it felt like they were both coming at it with a, a sort of a keenness, but they were expressing it differently. Where she was, like, throwing a challenge down to him the whole time. And he was, like, going, I don't know if I'm up to this, but I'm, I want to. I agree with you completely on that. I think I misunderstood what you meant by charming because I think he, as a person individually, wins people over with his genuine personality by the end of the book or across the book. But in terms of trying to charm people in in the way of like a con artist or like in the moment, I don't think he's as successful as that as he might want to think he is. Yeah, that was more what I, charming in the manipulative sense as opposed to making a genuine human connection. Mm. I mean, I think he is that as well. I mean, he gets what he wants out of most of the people he talks to uh, one way or another. You know, he gets what he needs from the printers. He gets what he needs from the coachman. But look, we'll get to those things. I think it is useful at this point to introduce the rest of the main cast because he does go to the post office and meet the existing post office staff who are still there. And there's not many of them because the post office is not just run down. It's basically completely derelict. The building is still standing, but it's mostly empty of people. How dare you? The the inkwells are all full. The inkwells are regulation. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but there's nobody there, and there's almost nothing in there except, as it turns out, these mountains of undelivered letters. But also, there are two staff there, and we have the three Im- staff. Three staff. Sorry, three staff. There are the amazing characters. Of a junior postman, Tolliver Grote, who is, despite his title, very, very old. <laughs> uh, and uh, apprentice postman, Stanley, who I don't think ever gets a surname, does he? I, d- I, d- I don't remember. He was raised by peas. I don't think they go in for, in for surnames. <laughs> Fair enough. And, of course, the third employee, Tiddles, the post office cat, who is a very Pratchett-style real cat. <laughs> I looked that up, and... um. Post office cats were a real thing. Oh, apparently, yeah. like they were, oh. they were an actual proper like station that got they got paid. They even had like a specific allowance each month. Well, yeah, and there was apparently like a bit of a fracas 
or a rumpus in like the 30s or 40s because they realized that they hadn't increased the cat's pay in oh. several decades. So oh, wow. um, someone on behalf of the cats like went in for that. And there's famous ones. Like I looked, there's a Wikipedia page for Tibbs the Great, who's a cat from the 1950s, I think, who was like well known for being like one of the best mousers of the post office. So um, that's the real thing. And I was wondering if Tibbs the Great was kind of an inspiration for Tiddles. It's a similar name, though maybe it's like mm. past his heyday. Mm. What what did they pay them with? With money? Money, yeah. I assume it was for like upkeep. I don't know if they had like special bank accounts to get them fleed and stuff, but they did have like a money for them, which is weird, right? But great, yeah. <laughs> I have some friends who are obsessed with the idea of uh, dogs with jobs, and now we've got cats with jobs. We're evening it up, it's good. Pratchett loves cats. This is a well-established thing in his books. He has very definite ideas about what cats should be like, and Tiddles, I think, matches most of them, um, <laughs> although he's a lot less vicious than most of the cats that he writes about. Interestingly, the last book that we read for the podcast, Johnny and the Bomb, has a cat named Guilty in it, who I was thinking of every time Richard Gilt showed up, but a very different kind of cat. Look, let's talk about Groat and Stanley. Tolliver Groat, what an extraordinary character. I loved him. He's so disgusting, but I loved him <laughs> at the same time. And his sentient toupee. Basically, that's weird, isn't it? I love a character who is who knows what they are about. They know who they are. They know exactly what their values are. They know exactly they know what right and wrong is and how the world is supposed to be, even if that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. As (laughs) as you know, it does in this book. Like it just (laughs) his rules and regulations and what he believes about the world and how it should be is just like he's 100% certain that he's right and it does not matter if that means that the entire post office fills with mail till, you know, it's literally coming out the windows because that's the re- the regulations. Hmm. Because they're following things to the letter. Hey. Mm. <laughs> but like, I think some ways he's his own like post office golem because he's got his cam except it's the post office regulations. Yeah, there's not a lot of that in this book. It's interesting that the golems feature so much in this book, but there's only a few times where they really get into the sort of way that golems work in terms of the words in their head. But it does become very important because it's that fact that those are the only words that influence them that makes it safe for them to work in libraries and post offices and places that have large collections of other words which might otherwise influence people. The Groat's remedies, I mean... They are gross, right? Like, it's not just me who finds them <laughs> disgusting. You mean, like, you, you thought for a moment that one of us would think that putting, like, bread pudding all around yourself and, like, filling your socks with sulfur might be, like, a like a cool thing to do? Like, a... <laughs> like I don't know. I don't know what you do to look after I, I yourself. I think I'm offended. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but let, let's yeah, talk- I only what... use, yeah, cake. <laughs> no. Wait, are you Mrs. Cake? Is that where the name comes from? Don't ask. Um, <laughs> You're not allowed to ask. Okay. What about Stanley? Let's talk about Stanley. He's a fascinating delight. backstory for the Marvel guy. But yeah. <laughs> what? Because Stanley. Oh, I see. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. Can you imagine if that's his backstory and then he goes on to like. <laughs> create comic books empire. i mean he's got the right <laughs> temperament to become the the creator of comic books on the on the disc world <laughs> ask me about comic books yeah you're right makes sense <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i had forgotten i knew there was a payoff to the pin collecting 
Like I knew that this, there was a, his obsession with pins was going to have a payoff later on in the book from the first time I read, but I was going, what, what is, why is he obsessed with pins? There's a reason there's going to be like, there's something to do with collecting and collecting pins. It's going to pay off later on. And I could not remember what it was. <laughs> and I laughed out loud when it finally, when, when it was like, Oh yeah, stamps. Like that's what <laughs> he's been. It's like he's been sitting in the post office for, I don't know. I don't know how old he is or how long he's been there, but just all this time waiting for the invention of stamps. <laughs> like someone needed to invent stamps so that this man would have a purpose in life and he's just making do with pins until <laughs> stamps come along. And that was just yeah, put, beautiful. Childish pins can be put aside now. Yeah. He's got a real hobby for life. That was, yes. that was great. That was such a good line. Uh, oh God, the guy in the pin store saying because of Stanley's like pin magazine, and even he's saying like he's a bit weird was just yes. yeah, <laughs> really. <laughs> it's a bit rough. Yeah. Uh, that was very yeah. weird. That scene in the pin shop is very like, like it's so obviously going into like you know a dirty magazine shop. You know, mm. like it's it's so weird. Uh, I was actually reading it in this uh, in this particular month of our weird year. I was wondering if next door there might be uh, some sort of gardening facility where, uh, you know, Richard Gilt would end up accidentally giving a, a speech <laughs> or something, but it didn't happen. So, uh, I, I, it felt more like a comic book store to me, to be honest. That was the feeling I got, like that everyone's here just for comics because it's like this family comics, but I've got some special or a video shop or even a bookshop. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Cheeky stuff out the back. That was the, that was the feeling I got. Yeah, that's yeah. the feeling like the I cool got. The cool guy who works behind the counter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely felt like that adult store vibe. <laughs> yeah. Don't go for it for nails, though. <laughs> it's gross. So weird. Once we meet everybody, this is where the, the plot starts to take off. He discovers that the whole place is kind of like a bit useless, that it's full of undelivered mail. He has to sleep on a massive pile of undelivered mail because his office and his bedroom as the postmaster are full of letters. And he reads one as he goes to sleep on that first night, which is where he uh, encounters the acronym SWALK for the first time, which I thought was pretty great. But they're keeping things from him. They don't tell him about the previous postmasters who've been sent to reopen the post office, Mm. and he doesn't know what's happened to them yet. And uh, he goes to the pin shop because he's figured out, if I buy some cool pins, I can use those to win over Stanley. He can already figure out that Grote is very prideful. He's very proud of himself and proud of being part of the post office. So he's going to get into his head by offering him promotions, which he doesn't do straight away. But later on, uh, he starts to do that. But also while he's out walking around and uh, reading a street directory where he finds out a useful piece of information, he comes across the Golem Trust and thinks, well, I really want to know more about Golems because I want to figure out if there's any way I can escape Mr. Pump. So he goes into the Golem Trust where he immediately meets at Crossbow Point and also I think is immediately smitten by, I think it's pretty much uh, instantaneous, the one and only Adorabel Dearheart. Everyone in this book has such amazing names. <laughs> They're so good. Mm. She might not have shot him through the heart literally, but she shot him through the heart in a different way. I don't think he goes in there purely because he wants to escape Mr. Pump. Isn't it the night before he hears Mr. Pump is called that because he spent 230 years down the bottom of a dark well pumping water and he starts to sort of feel a bit like, oh, that's not that's not great. And we see like the flickering of a bit of morals. 
yeah. in him. So I thought that was part of his motivation for going into the Golem Trust. But I don't think it's purely – I also think that it's to see, like, if he can get away from him. Yeah, because yeah. even quite later in the book, like, even after he's been on his first trip to deliver mail – uh, and Mr. Pump doesn't follow him on that occasion. He starts to wonder if that is a loophole where he can get away and maybe fake his death and escape or something. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I felt that was his primary motivation, but you're right. He does find out about that and does seem to have a bit of a, wow, that's a whole thing. Cause he basically, and I love that conversation actually too. Cause he says, what happened? What happened to this place? You, you live here. And he's like, I don't know. He's like, whoa, are you in a hole for the last year? And he goes, no. In the hole for the last 240 yeah. years. <laughs> it was a great line. <laughs> a um, joke. But yeah, he meets uh, Adora Bell Deerheart, who, look, is she one of the greatest characters in Pratchett? I, I think you're a bit of a fan, Liz. Well, she's so good. And like the bit where like he tries on like his woke boy outfit for a bit and she's like talking about, oh, yeah, Pump 32 or whatever. And he's like, oh, we call him Mr. Pump. She's like, oh, does that give you like a nice warm feeling inside? Like, do you feel all, all great about that? <laughs> it's just so good. Yeah. She's just oh, withering. She's withering uh, in her wit. It's so good. I love everything that she says. But also, she wears high heels, but as weapons. So it's just. Yeah, she's everything's calculated. But it's also interesting because she must be like in the throes of grief because like how much before the gen like about a month before this all kicks yeah, it's off only is about when a month. her brother has mm. died. So do you reckon this is her normal personality or like it augmented? The- yeah, I don't know. Like I'm just wondering like how that's impacting on her person. Like later on yeah, we're she- out of the books and she's like this. But yeah, she must be grieving at this point still. She's clearly angry when she has that big long sort of explainer you know, in the uh, restaurant, she's about, you know, what's happened and the corruption. She's very mm. angry about what's happened. Yeah, yeah. I, I think she's like this all the time. And I think whenever she does get those bits of anger, like, it's almost like that's that's the chink in her armor. Like, normally she's got this edifice of, like, you're not getting any feelings out of me except, you know, withering scorn. <laughs> um, <laughs> but because she has lost her brother and her father as well, effectively, who's just been destroyed by having the grand trunk stolen out from under him. Spoilers for later in the book, by the way. That's the thing that gets her to show some emotion. And then also, you know, sometimes when Moist does some things that are good and he seems to really care about the golems, like I think you see a little glimmer of it there too. Like there's a few times, mm. like the first couple of times that she smiles when he's around. It's like, oh, but like, even when she says yes to him the first time to go on a date, all she does, she doesn't say anything. She just sort of nods very curtly, <laughs> which fair enough. He's done it in front of a crowd, which is not really okay. But she feels very genuine. But yeah, it does. Yeah. Which is, this is an interesting contrast. She's, she's very much, my impression is she is what she is on the inside and the out with a bit of her vulnerability tucked away, but it's a really interesting contrast to him who's, um, seesawing between his persona and his real self which i don't think is fully developed so it's kind of fascinating to see these very different characters click so well Mm. yeah i was worried that she was going to be one of those uh female characters who's brought in and shown to be really tough and independent and real badass and then they're used as a tool to show how dire the circumstances are later on you know, like when even she needs to be rescued, you know, so she's not a damsel in distress, but, even, you know, even she needs to be rescued by the hero. And I was glad that she kind of maintained her, like, autonomy and was her own character for the whole book and not just a sort of love interest or a um, a kind of side note 
but moist. Mm. Had her own shit going on. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, she's, it's very interesting because I think my feelings about her as a character are a little bit colored by the fact that I've read the, the following book that she's in. And I know that she's still like this, even when the plot is not revolving around sort of her family history. And here, because she's so bundled up in the plot because of that history, it does feel like they're kind of a bit fated and to, to cross paths and to, to end up together. But I still think it really works well. And we've talked about on the podcast, particularly some of his really early books. Uh, like Mort, in fact, the romance mm. just does not feel at all genuine. It feels very kind of forced. I mean, in Mort, you've got these two teenagers who just bicker all the time. And then we're meant to believe that that means they really like each other as if they're like four years old and conforming to all of the sort of horrible gender stereotypes that we're taught rather than any kind of real connection. And he's got a few other books that are like that. But this this feels good. This feels right. Yeah. A proper pairing of people. Meeting of mm. minds. Yeah, of equals, definitely. Yeah, he likes her because she doesn't succumb to what he thinks is his charms against ordinary people. She can possibly see through that, and so that's why he's intrigued. Mm. Mm. The thing that happens next is the whole scene where Lord Vetinari is having his audience with Richard Gilt and the other owners of the Grand Trunk. And this basically fills in for us who the villain is and what their deal is, because they have basically offered this money to these entrepreneurs and engineers who've created the much more efficient form of semaphore that is the Grand Trunk, but they've done it in such a way that it never quite seems to make enough money to pay them back, and slowly they kind of buy it out from under them until the guys who started it and invented it don't own it anymore. And it's, I mean, it's so the classic kind of Silicon Valley tech engineer startup kind of story from you know, usually the 80s where people were making these new technologies and trying to get them to work. And this is before, you know, like that meant people like Zuckerberg would become billionaires. They're like the Steve Wozniak of Apple, you know, like they made it work, but they didn't end up being a multi-billionaire owner of the company, possibly because they got swindled out of it, which I don't think is really what happened to Wozniak, but it's it's that kind of story. And it's kind of gross because you've got all these capitalists, all these really rich, awful dudes who own this really important thing and not only own it and have bought it out from underneath the guys who made it, but are running it into the ground by not doing essential maintenance, by having it shut down possibly on purpose to delay things so that they don't have to pay for it running all the time and so they can put up the price of when it is in operation because there's less time available to send all of the messages. Like They're just a bunch of jerks, but they're getting away with it because they've done it all in a way that seems to be legally sound. But we do get a good sense of veterinary having a control. Like, every time veterinary enters a scene, I'm like, oh, he's got a long-term plan for all of this. Like, you can, because they even have the very literal, like, him playing the chess equivalent in the corner of the room throughout the whole thing. So you're like, oh, he's just moving pieces around this whole, this whole book. Like, he's putting moist in place because this problem's arisen, et cetera, et cetera. It feels like he's got control all the time and he even does that like excellent art of war shit where he's like got the fake folders like this is not in the art of war like Sun Tzu was not like and now you get the folders and you fill them with fake reports and then <laughs> get them with so, bureaucracy <laughs> but he has all like the fake files to freak them out yeah i sort of see veterinary as who moist wants to be i mean there's definitely mm. admiration there moist sort of sees him as a puppet master who's well ahead of himself and when I first started reading the book, I just thought, oh, this is just a cookie cutter villain. 
But no, we have got the proper villain later on in Reacher. But Veterinari is definitely someone who is holding all of the cards. And yeah, is he perhaps someone that Moist would rather be? But Moist uses, I guess, non-violence, whereas um, Veterinari is happy to use any method required to coerce people. Mm. I think that's really fascinating as well because um, we've got these two common characters because we've now been introduced to Richard Guild who's like basically dressed like a classic pirate and he's in with all the finance bros because he, he's like in charge of the Grand Trunk and he's like kind of like a tiger. Oh, they describe him like that. Of course. Throughout. I just got that. Sorry, pirate. I didn't get it. Sorry. Yeah. He, he's, he's got, he's a very fancy pirate to be fair. Like yep. his, his uh, mm. eye patch has got like gemstones on it or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, quick tangent, apparently, like, pirates wore eye patches not because they were covering up an eye, but so they could adjust to the dark very quickly. Have you heard this? Like, so you I have, have an eye it. patch over one eye, then when you go downstairs, you switch it to the other eye, so you're, you've already got an eye that's adjusted to, to see in the dark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's it. Look, it's certainly is, a story. Um, but that's, that's a, true a lot story. of effort for, like, minimal reward. <laughs> that was my tangent, but what I was saying was that you've got these two common characters. You've got Moist von Lipwig and Richard Gilt. We have Moist throughout comparing himself to this other one because they look, they have that scene later on where they look each other in the eye and they sort of see each other for what they really are. And Moist acknowledges that Richard is like a much better version of the con man he's trying to be. And in another world, he would have wanted to learn from him. But I was quite shocked when it's revealed that there's a theory that Reacher wants to be the patrician one day, which did not sit with me as what I would have thought his goals were. Like he seems like he's sort of like get in, get the money, move on to the next thing, not not seeking power for the sake of power, which is kind of what being the patrician is. I mean, I guess if you're at the top of government, you can um, do a lot of dodgy stuff as we may be seeing somewhere else in the world. But as Lawrence was saying, if Moist is seeing veterinary as an aspirational character for his personality, while Reacher is seeing him as an aspirational character for his position. That's an interesting way to contrast these two characters who are sort of used as as two pillars of the same thing. Mm. Keep not ending my thoughts strongly, but there's that. <laughs> I, I was kind of seeing Reacher as a bit like Trump. I mean, he lives in Tump Tower. So, so then <laughs> yeah. I start, for the rest of the time, I was seeing him as a capitalist who was trying to get into, you know, the halls of government, so to speak. Um, oh, and he's trying to destroy the postal service, so that's kind of twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he's seeing I think ahead. it is in the book that it's mentioned that he has aspirations of being patrician. I think I think mm. that is in there somewhere. That was mentioned as a theory. He doesn't say it himself. They're like there are oh, rumors true. that guilt wants to be patrician. But I think those rumors wouldn't exist if he didn't want them to exist. Like he's that kind of character. And you mentioned like when he and Moist have that sort of eye to eye and siege into each other's souls. But he also has a moment like that kind of with the patrician when they're talking about the thud board or what is it? The huffle, baffle, swiffle, whiffle, tuffle table, which is, you know, by the way, named after a real board game. Tuffle games are a, a sort of a family of board games invented by Vikings. Thud, which is the dwarf troll game that they're playing, which is also got this name, is basically very similar to a lot of those. So that's a, that's a real, there's another bit of research for you that then has been turned into a very ridiculous name joke. But yeah, when they have that moment, I think the thing that really sums it up for me is when Reacher Guilt sort of says, Oh, you can learn all of your opponent's weaknesses on this board. And the patrician just says, really? I would have thought a man would be trying to learn his own weaknesses. And you're like, that's kind of the, mm. like he has that kind of self examination where he's not just trying to get on top and defeat other people. He's trying to do 
what's right using all the same kind of skill set. It just really tapped into my recent watching of Queen's Gambit as well. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> look, there's just there's a lot of good board game stuff out there at the moment. Well, look, we should get through some more of the plot because we, we're going to run out of time otherwise. We find out some more about what's going on at the post office. Thanks to Adora Bell, Moist discovers that it wasn't back in the old days of the post office that the previous postmaster died. It was four of them who'd been sent to be postmaster have died in the last five weeks. And he's like, what is that all about? And gets pretty annoyed. But he also sort of makes the decision that he's going to try and take this job seriously and maybe he can make it work for him. And the first thing he does as a sort of a sign of this is he's figured out what's happened to the missing letters from the motto on the outside of the post office, which famously, instead of saying in gloom of night, says in glom of knit, uh, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And it's such a great gag. It's a gag from an earlier book. In fact, I think it's from Guards, Guards. So way back, many, many books before this. It's a good gag. And they've been stolen to make the sign on a nearby hairdresser's shop. Uh, so he goes and uses uh, Mr. Pump as a bit of leverage to say, we're going to take those back. Thank you very much. But then he also tries to get Stanley and Grote to tell him what's really going on. And they really don't want to be forthcoming. And it leads to a bit of tension between all the post office staff. And then we have a really nice little interlude while things are sort of simmering along nicely as things start to heat up, where we go to a clax tower out in the middle of nowhere and we hear one of the most famous things, certainly now, that Pratchett ever wrote, which is the idea of a man is not dead while his name is still spoken. And we hear that John Deerhart's name is being sent up and down the clax tower system, always being turned around and returned back to the other end with the code GNU at the start, which is a massive nerd reference. New was one of the first big free software organized things. And new just stands for new is not Unix because they were making a free alternative to the operating system Unix. <laughs> um, so it doesn't, it's one of those oh. recursive acronyms that are so popular in early computing history. There's a lot of other ones. My favorite one is there was a popular email program for text-based Unix-based computers called Elm. And then someone made a rival one called Pine. And it stood for Pine is not Elm. So they, they really love those sort of stupid jokes. Um, and I love how much of that early computer science and engineering stuff is in the clack stuff in this book. And the, the bit about sending the, the code up and down in the overhead, which is like the metadata that you get on websites, is beautiful. And in fact, fans have created a thing you can add to your website called XClax Overhead that embeds <laughs> the new code in your website. And if you have a special plugin installed in your browser, you can see it and it displays it as a little clax semaphore tower with the little lights oh. going on and off. And if you want to see that, listeners, since the start of Pratchett, we have had that installed on our website. So you can go and find it there. Oh, that's nice. So, uh, and, and most of the websites that run that, it says GNU Terry Pratchett because a man's not dead and while his name is still spoken. Oh. So that's become a real tradition. Mm. And of course, he wrote this slightly before his Alzheimer's diagnosis. So he didn't write that thinking this is going to be my epitaph. He wrote that because mm. of his existing feelings, um, which you can see in the way that he writes the character of death and when he writes about death in general, um, mm. about death and dying. So it's really poignant now. Is there a deliberate parallel with the, the earlier prologue about the, the dead ships going round and round in an underwater current that, that the first postman is watching as well? You know, I hadn't thought of that, but as soon as you started saying that, I'm like, yes, of course. Of course there is. And that's beautiful. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, because it goes all the way back to like the 
Yeah, the 9,000-year one and the first postman, and it's kind of like a nice sort of, yeah. Yeah, I like that. How does Pratchett, because I, I find often with the books that it's just going joke, 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 joke. And, and the way in which I would write it is I would go joke, 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 joke. Here's some pathos, joke, 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 joke. Whereas with him, the jokes don't stop, but somehow you still get the mm. the, the, the pathos and the deeper meaning and... You know, it's not just necessarily satirizing, but perhaps saying something a little bit more poignant, yeah. but without the the jokes ever sort of getting in the way of that. How how does he do that? And how can I, as a writer, also do that? <laughs> I would like to know that too. I think in yeah. this one, he really sets the stakes well. It's a bit like some of the things that I've tried to do is that, you know, when I'm writing a comedy, but I'm also trying to write a story is I take it seriously. And I think he's he's famously on record as saying that the opposite of funny is not serious, right? You can be funny and not funny and you can be serious and you can be silly. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. And I think this book has got silly stuff in it, but also the essential plot and what's at stake is very serious. Mm. And people have died and people are having their lives destroyed by people who just want to be rich Whereas the people who really care and are trying to do something important are the ones who are suffering. And I think he sees that very keenly. And I think by focusing on that as well as having jokes, like those people are never at the butt of the jokes in a mean way. Mm. You know, like they might have a loving sort of parody and homage of that sort of early computer science era. And they've got dumb names and they say stupid things and and he's a bit sort of, you know, he likes to, to hang a bit of shit on them because of how much they're into it. But it's all done in a very loving way. And so you care about those people. And when they die and when he talks about it, we care about it. So it's not mean comedy. And I think I think that's part of how he does it. Well, Lawrence, your shows always sort of have a, a heft or a theme behind them. Like it, it's not a series of sketches or jokes linked together. Like I, I remember going to one where a key point of it was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which is not <laughs> usually like <laughs> fodder for like a humorous show. So like, I mean, how do you approach the balance of those things like pathos and humor oh it's really tricky i mean i think i i want to concentrate on the 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 pathos i want to concentrate on themes and what i want to say as you know the most important basis but because i can't take myself too seriously i just put too many jokes in i just want to put jokes in and i think that that stops things getting too um I guess pretentious. So jokes is a great way to stop pretension. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I truly admire how Pratchett does it in, especially in this book. He covers so many themes of morality, free will, slavery, the idea of choice, what it is to become, you know, your identity, existentialism, death, human rights. It just covers so many topics, corporate versus civic duty. Uh, industrial revolution versus, you know, medieval. Like, everything is so loaded up in this universe. It, it's almost like all he has to do once he gets the wheels in motion is just to see how it plays out. And his own sort of um, predisposition is to write gags around it, but mm. never forgetting sight of where the, the moral compass is in his own writing. He seems to really care about the downtrodden. Yeah. I think it's also about truth you know like i think lawrence like uh, i think i've I've told you this before so i hope this doesn't come as a surprise but you're watching some of your really early comedy shows was a big inspiration to me when i was getting into comedy because you were talking about stuff that really genuinely mattered to you and then making jokes about it and 
because it really mattered to you, there was an essential truth to what you were writing. And Nick, I see that in some of your work as well. You don't write about things that you don't care about. It comes out. And that truth and that real passion means that even when you're making jokes about something, that comes through. And so the pathos is really there. So I guess what I'm saying is, Nick, you already know how to do this. Keep doing it. <laughs> I'm as good as Terry Pratchett. Thank you. Aww. Yeah, you had... You don't need a magic feather. Truth was, oh. it was in you all along. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> right. Excuse me. He's quit. Nick's quit now. He doesn't need to be here anymore. He's got what he wanted out of the podcast. <laughs> I got what I came for. He's still here. But it's just amazing. Like, it is, like, nonstop jokes, even while getting stuff across. Like, even, like, and he sneaks them in where they shouldn't be funny. Like, there's this one where, like, someone's trying to say psst to someone, and he just says pissed. And, like, that shouldn't be funny but <laughs> yeah, it's just right. so good <laughs> and i think Mo- he's saying it to moist and moist goes i think you mean Psst. and it was very that was very funny i like that <laughs> look let's keep going through the plot here because like we say it's a big plot we've got to get through it okay so let's blitz through some stuff he has yeah. the hallucinations about he, the post office he, he starts hearing the letters and seeing the old post office and that's how he figures out how the all the other postmen died yeah because he sees the past but he's still physically in the present which is a really i thought that was really nice sort of weird juxtaposition i don't think i've seen that done in any sort of time travel kind of business before that was great and he figures it out unlike those other four dum-dums yeah (laughs) who's a trained assassin one of them like come on be better i never really understood i i didn't quite get why that was happening well, that that comes back in later on when he goes to the wizards to try and figure it out. They tell him mm. that it's, you know, when you get a whole bunch of books together, a knowledge that that creates this warp in space and time that he refers to as L-space for library space. And when he goes to see the wizard Pelk at the university, he basically tells him that letters are basically the same thing. And particularly if you've got this massive amount of them, mm-hmm. they're going to have this warping effect. There's a nice little sideline where he tries to try and explain that and he says, you know, they're just words. And he goes, oh, really? Would you would you burn a book? He's like, well, no, I probably wouldn't burn a book. He's like, even if it was old and you didn't need it anymore? He's like, no, it would feel wrong. He's like, yeah, it's because it's got this weird metaphysical weight to it and it changes the world. So, that's it's kind of a magic, basically, that's generated by the fact that there's so many of these letters there that haven't been delivered and that have people's thoughts and emotions embedded in them through their words. Words of power. Yeah, he says that, exactly. Because, yeah, when it got to that, I felt like a tiny bit disappointed because I think I was hoping for a grand conspiracy as to why everyone was dying under mysterious circumstances. And it was like, no, it was a magical word-induced you know, workplace accident. <laughs> it wasn't as big a payoff as I was expecting. I was like, I thought guilt was going to be involved in the murders. There was going to be some, like, suppression of the post office kind of thing. But, yeah, perhaps, like... There were too many that died to make it like that sort of built it up a bit much. If it had been like two, mm. even three, but four, it sounded like a conspiracy. But it's just like one didn't see the, the lack of floor. One fell down the stairs and one got scared because a ghost walked through him and died. And I'm like, that was the weakest <laughs> one for me. I'm like, if a ghost walked through me, I'd be like, this is weird. But I wouldn't be like, well, I guess I better pop my clogs then, especially <laughs> if I've been through assassin's training and that was the one who was like supposed to be an assassin i'm like what are you doing wasn't the assassin one the one who gets blown to bits by the sorting machine oh yeah no yeah. you're right he's the one who's yeah okay which we'll All come right. to because that's amazing uh i love the sorting machine i think it was fine that it was magic and and all this other stuff rather than a guilt plot 
because that's what I was expecting, a conspiracy, mm. but it turns out it's just really bad OH&S. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is the bigger killer. But yeah, he, so he has the hallucinations or he sees the past of the post office, which, and, but he also starts to hear the voices of the letters who want to be delivered. And the, I think this is about the time in the book that he gets a visit from the person he has delivered a letter to because he read one of the letters and just decided to deliver it because he was going past and he had it in his pocket. And then this guy turns up and says, yeah, it was from my childhood sweetheart. And it, we're both really old now, but both of our, you know, respective spouses have died. So now we're going to marry each other. It's going to be great. And uh, it turns out he's also a member of like one of the guilds. And that's another notch in the belt for the post office's return, I suppose. There was a real joy of writing in this section because um, when he first goes to the greengrocer's store to deliver this letter, oh, um, yeah. the children are in there and it seems like talking with misplaced apostrophes is genetic <laughs> because we don't meet the father there, but the, the children are using apostrophes all wrong because there's an apostrophe used wrong in the sign, but they talk like that too and that's delightful. <laughs> oh, yeah, like, oh, he's not here. He's trying to subdue a cabbage out the back right now, which is a running joke. And then he comes through and he's exactly like one of those guys in the market who's terrifying like so scary that you don't want to go to his stall like who's like oh yeah fresh like beets are this much and you're like oh i'm you're just so loud i can't can't buy vegetables from you i'm, I'm terrified <laughs> um and so moist all of his stuff doesn't work on him as he barrels up to him and is just just irrepressibly <laughs> jovial so yeah i, I love this bit character so <laughs> yeah they were great they were really good about this time as he's starting to take it seriously or at least seems to be Grote is worrying about the fact that he also seems to want to change a lot of things and not really respect all of the regulations. So he calls in his mates from the Order of the Post, which is the sort of secret society of postmen, and they force him to go through the traditional initiation by putting a bag over his head and getting him to, like, walk over obstacles like a rake and a broken bottle. And then he has to, like, <laughs> post the mail in without getting his fingers sliced off by the mail slot. And then the, the final challenge is the dog's which he handily sorts out because they're lipsvigers. They're, they're this special breed of dog that his granddad used to breed. Or so he thinks, and then he finds out that they're not. They're just sort of vaguely related. Did it work because he was confident? Like, is that that thing that animals can sense fear and because he wasn't scared of them because he thought he knew what they were, they're like, all right, I guess we'll obey then? Like, like how did he do it? That's how I read it. <laughs> And then I just like the, the quiet, subtle mention of how he, like, definitely shit his pants, like, <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was great. <laughs> but uh, that's when he also hears the mail again, sort of goes into a bit of a fugue state almost and delivers this amazing speech and wakes up the next day and has to be filled in about what he did. But basically he's promoted Grote to postal inspector, I think, and been given the gold winged hat of the postmaster, the traditional one, and he's ordered a, a suit made by a golem that matches it. And he starts sending out all these old postmen to try and live the backlog of mail. And Grote finally lets him in on the secret of what finally did the post office in, which is the sorting machine built by bloody stupid Johnson, which is this horrendous sort of mechanical device. But at its heart, it has a circle where bloody stupid Johnson decided that the irrational number pi is ridiculous. And it would be much better if the ratio of the circumference of a circle divided by its diameter, was just three. And uh, it'd be a lot easier to remember and use in maths. So he does that, and that sort of creates this weird alternate universe machine that spews out mail before it's ever sent or from alternate universes, and that puts all this weird mail into the post office and starts the massive piles of mail. 
And eventually the postal inspector thumps it, even though he's told that might end the whole universe. And I love that bit where he's explaining that, well, I figured if it was going to end the whole universe, no one would know, right? So I might as well give it a go. Mm. <laughs> uh, just that whole sequence. It's weird. Like I feel rereading the book, I sort of felt it's a bit weird as it's out of place. It really only exists for the gags about the nature of the universe and as a way to kill uh, the assassin who comes later on. But mm. apart from that, it doesn't really have much to do with the plot. So it does feel like a bit of an aside, but it's such a fun one that I really enjoyed it. The idea that pi equals three is a reference to the Bible. In the Bible, pi is... Uh, <laughs> the Bible? Did you say the Bible? Sorry? Bible. <laughs> in the Bible, yeah. In I think, I can't remember exactly where it is, but it's Solomon's temple is described as having a, a large pool or a pond or something that is round, that is 10 cubits wide and... 30 cubits all round or something like that. And so it's often used to mock like biblical literalists who think that everything in the Bible must be literally true. And they say, well, therefore, pi must equal three. That basically is a way of mocking the Bible, essentially. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Me neither. In Indiana, in like the late 19th century, someone did write like a bill that they put before the state of Indiana where they wanted to redefine how a circle would work mathematically because they thought it was too hard. But it, it and it <laughs> turns out it what they weren't actually trying to redefine what pi was, but they were kind of trying to do something with the trigonometry that just didn't make sense. So it was, yeah. So, I, but I, I hadn't heard about the biblical one. That's amazing. Yeah, people have put out since then have just put out very, very serious papers saying we must do this. And, and it normally comes out at the same time as creationism and, and, you know, teaching evolution in schools and so on. There'll be people coming out with the argument that we should be teaching that pi equals three in, in, in schools. Oh, wow. That's what the <laughs> Bible says. Yeah. In an alternate universe. All right. We're going to have to blitz through some of the best parts of the book, but let's summarize. This is where Moist finds out about how stamping works, and so he comes up with the idea of actual stamps, which turns out eventually to be a massive hit. Everybody loves them, not least of all Stanley. But he also, the old men can't really handle the mail delivery where they're trying to do the backlog, so he goes back to the Golem Trust to hire some golems, which means that he can also have a bit more banter with the doorbell, so that's great. And when the golems arrive, he puts them through the trial, they smash it, quite literally, and... That gives her sort of a, a chance to banter with him some more where she sort of first lets on that she hates the Grand Trunk. So he's like, oh, and he does actually ask her out to dinner and she turns him down, which is great. But that's also when Ang Hammerad, the ancient golem who turns out to have been a postman 9,000 years ago, turns up, who I love. He's probably my favourite incidental character in the book. So great. But yeah, they, he goes off to a fancy printer to get the, the stamps printed, helps them invent perforated stamps, which in the real world, I think, took about 17 years after the first actual stamps. And then uh, he gets interviewed by the Times for the first time, where he sort of talks about how he's going to bring the post office back. And they talk to him about, you know, isn't it a bit weird that the clacks are less reliable than the post? And he's like, well, I'm not here to say anything bad about the clacks, but we are going to deliver the mail. And that leads to this whole rivalry being escalated even further and leads to crowds at the door of the post office. They all want to buy stamps and send their mail off to various places. And they're just buying stamps because they're great. And incidentally, in the meantime, Vetinari has decided he can't send somebody to spy on Reacher Gilt because he'll be onto it. So he sends someone to spy on his mate Crispin Horsefry, another one of the great names in this <laughs> book, who is the most cowardly one of the sort of cartel that owns the Grand Trunk. 
who gets spooked, gives all his evidence of all the, the dodgy dealings he's been doing to Reacher Guild. And then Reacher has him killed off by his assassin, Mr. Grile, who we don't quite know what he is at that point. I thought it was going to be a gargoyle because of the name Grile or Grill, because it looks like the word gargoyle with letters missing. Yeah, I thought he was legitimately scary. Yeah, mm. I thought he was really kind of awful. And it was interesting because he doesn't often write like the really monstrous characters in that way. Like they're usually very human monsters. But Mr. Grile is one of the few times he's really written someone who's like an inhuman, creepy, awful character. And I really, oh, I, I liked him. He was delicious. <laughs> he's a banshee. The only other male banshee we've come across is like super shy and part of that monsters club and like slips notes under people's doors that just say, ooh, because he doesn't <laughs> want to do the screaming outside. He's too shy. So he just writes it on a note. Mm. So that's a real contrast. Yeah, and it's another one of those times where Pratchett's like sort of redefining a bit of fantasy lore. Like he's going, yeah, well, you know what normal banshees are like. This is a feral banshee. Like they don't just scream when someone else is dying. They're probably screaming because they're killing someone. <laughs> like, okay, well, that's pretty rough. I love it. But we're going to skip through some stuff because basically he, I think, unwittingly kicks off some stuff with the Grand Trunk. He doesn't really quite know what he's doing. Basically, he's taking advantage of the fact that the Klax is, is shut down, and he's saying, we will take mail to where the Klax can't send it right now. We'll do it cheap, and it will get there, and it might not be as fast as a Klax would be, but it will actually get there today, whereas, you know, the Klax can't send anything right now. While the, all of the crowd things are happening, he asks out a doorbell and finally, like, makes them embarrassed by taking mail to the nearby town very quickly. And there's a big horse and pony show, quite literally, about it. Um, it's a great scene where he's like having an ice bath and the mayor wants stamps and there's all of that and that's very nice, but we don't have time. And basically he goes out to dinner. Reacher Guild has decided to set fire to the post office and he set Mr. Grail off onto things. But suddenly he can sense that the letters are burning while he's at dinner with a doorbell. So he goes back and the post office is on fire. And he doesn't just burn down the post office. When he gets there, because Moist is out to dinner with a doorbell... He has given Mr. Grote the postmaster's hat to wear because he's acting postmaster. And so Mr. Grote gets attacked by Mr. Grile, who sets the place on fire. But then Mr. Grile comes a cropper of Stanley, who we haven't mentioned, has a little moment, which is capitalised, when Mm. things don't go quite right. So he's very particular kind of person who very much thrives on order and can't deal with things not being the way that he expects. And I think he's obviously, he's clearly a very sympathetic character and he's not really written to be ridiculed because we love him and the plot and the book really loves him. And this is a nice contrast to the way sometimes Pratchett has written characters where he's made a character trait, a real source of jokes that feels quite mean. Like when he's written about particularly fat characters, he's often written a lot of mean fat jokes, but I don't feel like he's mean to Stanley, but there is this sort of idea that he's not quite right and that he can get violent and you know there's an element of that which is like that's not a great way to portray someone you know who's maybe neurodiverse because the truth is most neurodiverse people of course are not dangerous to anyone but there's a consistent way in which that they're presented in texts and and in in media where they are but i think in this he kind of he kind of has his cake and eats it too like i mean we stanley's only ever gets sort of violent when his friends are threatened and you like kind of feel that in a way he's kind of justified um, when his friend are threatened, Mr. Grove. Yeah, when his friend, specifically. That's he does only have the one. Um, but I, yeah, but that's that's what happens to Mr. Grile. It's what slows him down. And what a, like, a, a beautiful way to show Stanley's transition from pins to 
to Stamped in that, like, he has this bag of pins that he was previously so excited about and instead he uses it to smack its monster in the face. Yeah. Like, so hard that it has to go lick its wounds in the basement. Yeah. Basically, Stanley goes back and does what I imagine is the IT crowd thing where, um, where Moss has, there's a fire and he's emailing the fire department to be like, there's a fire. <laughs> and then he keeps looking at it. Um, he reads the regulations that are like, see if you can escape. No, can't do that. Or remain calm. All right. Just sit here and await either rescue or death. And he's like, well, guess that's it. And so he just sits there with Grote listening to the letter of the law. Meanwhile, Moist is coming back in. He rescues them, etc. The golems are on their way. He has a great scene with the doorbell where he's like, are you going to be like, don't go in? She's like, ah, oh, don't, don't go in. It's dangerous. Um, but if you do, it's not right. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and this is where he gives um, her a nickname as well. Um, although this is just after the fire, he gives her the nickname Spike, which I, which I hate because I watched Buffy first. So I was like, no. I yeah. oh, see. But for me, it goes back to Press Gang. <laughs> uh, yes. Oh, I thought that was, it was good. It's a good nickname. That suits her. It's just because I've already got a character called Spike so drilled into my mind. I just can't, oh. can't see her as that. Fighting the fire is also one of the saddest parts of the book because that's when Ang Hammerad gets destroyed. Mm. 9,000-year-old golem who's waiting. Liz, uh, Ang Hammerad believes time is a circle. Time is a flat circle. Time is a flat circle. <laughs> comes yeah. back around again. Liz used to say that all the time in the early episodes of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> now it's coming back to haunt us. Now that it's re- – because yeah, time is a flat circle. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. That's how it works. <laughs> but it's the thing, like, because, like, fire and water don't go together, and that's probably a theme of the book as well, like, because of, you know, reach your... I'm, I'm only explaining a little bit. Yeah, there's that. But I, I feel like this is the real climax of the book. Like, this is the sort of, like, how is he going to get out of this? Like, his post office has been mostly burned down. Doesn't it? Uh, I thought it felt like it solved the problem, which was they had millions of letters. A lot of them yeah. were, like, rotted and destroyed and mm. impossible to deliver, but they'd also mm. had this sort of commitment to the institution of the post office where they couldn't send them. So the only thing Terry Pratchett could do was have a big fire that will just kind of like solve the problem and none of them will be morally culpable. Like, you know, yeah. like it's not, <laughs> yeah. it felt sure. like a little bit of a do us ex machina to kind of go, well, what are we going to do with these largely undeliverable letters? I mean, most of them are still there. Like, it's a good half of the post office doesn't burn down. Um, so there's still a lot of letters. But then not much else is said about them after, like, the. Well, that's true. But that's because, yeah, I, you're right. Like, certainly, even though they still exist and they no longer become the narrative problem. Yeah. So I remember the first time I read this, I was like, is this book going to be them delivering these letters? Is that, is that what this is going to be? <laughs> I remember thinking, I was like, and I would have been perfectly happy with that because it's so in different ways. Like the plot could shoot off, but I remember being like, huh, this is like a long book and we're like this far in and they've got all these letters and then, oof, okay, that's going to happen. But yeah, it does solve that very well. It's going to turn into yeah. Kevin Costner's The Postman. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that this also forces Moist to give up his sort of ace in the hole of the buried money that he's kept from his various scams, which I think is also like, it's interesting that that's a very different thing to a lot of con artist stories. Like he talks about the fact that he could have spent it on lots of nice things, but for him having the money wasn't the point, like having a nice life. Because his joy comes from the actual performance of it all, isn't it? Because in the book, every time like he's doing something big, 
that's when he's most enjoying it. He's like, I couldn't stop it even if I wanted to. And it's interesting as a writing technique as well that so often when he's making his big speeches or when he does his big thing, like when they basically his plan is to write letters to four different gods to see if they'll give him a very specific amount of money. And we as readers don't get to see that play out. It's in fact told back to him through veterinary after it's happened. And this happens a few times throughout the book. Like we don't hear him make the speech to the postman. We hear about it afterwards when Mr. Pump is telling it to him. Mm. And it's almost as though his brain clicks into a different place when he's performing this role. And I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. And, you know, in a lot of con artist films, they do love what they do, but it's also about the money. They go off into the sunset and they're filthy rich or they have to do another scam because they've spent all the money from their previous scams or they got caught and they don't have the money anymore. Like, that seems to be part of so many of those stories. And yet here, he's got it safely stashed away, and he needs it to do the right thing. There was a saying, which I remembered, and I go, oh, there's this really pithy saying. I can't remember where I read it, but it was that uh, for con artists, they'd rather live like a millionaire than be one, which is, you right. know, and I was like, oh, that's really good. And so while, <laughs> while she was talking, I, I'll Google that and see where it's from. And you know where it's from? A little no, book called from? Chasing the Ace by Nicholas J. Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, you wrote oh. it. Just getting that in Me there. Me from five ah. years ago is very clever. Well, time is a flat circle. <laughs> time is a flat circle. <laughs> <laughs> ah, Quoting what did I myself. Miss? <laughs> uh, you missed a, an amazing piece of self-promotion by uh, Mr. <laughs> Nicholas J. Johnson <laughs> for his book Chasing the Ace, probably still available. Yes. In many bookstores, or at least many. by special order. Yeah. Um, there was a fire, though, so unfortunately a lot of them have been... Um, oh, no. <laughs> ...conveniently destroyed. They realise that, first of all, they can't prove guilt is the one who's burned down this post office. And secondly... They can't prove his guilt. Uh, yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, nice, um, and, nice. Uh, they also know that guilt will definitely be able to leverage public opinion to stop veterinary spending public money on rebuilding it because he'll be like it's useless you don't need it you've got the grand trunk and and they're like yeah they'll we'll never do it so moist is like i'm gonna need my own money to do this but this is still like it's game on now for reacher guilt although we should also mention just that mr grile who's not quite dead when uh, moist is saving the others from the fire including tittles yeah including the cat which becomes the front page of the paper the next day but he does manage to throw him into the sorting machine which does him in which is pretty awful but great the banshee not the cat yeah the banshee yeah, yeah it doesn't yeah. throw mr tittles into the sorting machine that would be a crime against uh cat well, that beautiful scene from alien though like with the cat under the machinery and he can send something behind him and the cat hisses and it's just the classic. It's so good. Oh, yeah. Very clear alien reference. It's great. I love that. It's a wonderful moment when he goes to save the cat because he's not trying to save the cat to save the cat. He's doing it to make a show. You know, he knows it's going to be in the front cover of the paper. Yeah. Um, and that really shows that him wrestling with his cowardice. It's a very funny scene, which is all about character. Is it though, like, also a thing of in the book, he keeps saying, maybe I'm going to just do this. Maybe I'm just going to be a good person. Like, that, maybe I'm just going to run the post office and I'm going to do a good job and that, that's who I'm going to be. And, and then he has this thing of like, no, I'm going to make all this money from the stamps and I'm going to plan this scam. And, and he just, but he, so he, like you said, he's pretending to be a good person. And then I think at the end, there's a, just a reference to like, well, you just, that's what you do. You just, do a good things like you you are a good person because you're out there and you're doing good things and you're being good and just you just continue doing that so it's kind of like 
Even though he is doing it for the publicity, he's still doing a good thing. It's about choices, like choosing continuously to be a good person rather than making one decision early on. He has to continuously choose to be good, which yeah. speaks to character as well. Yeah. yeah. I do like his conversation with the cat. Like the cat, like sort of, he finally finds him, and he's like, he's like "You're really acting like a cat here, where you're under this machine." <laughs> and then he's like, "Finally, he's like, I have to emerge with the cat. You does not have to be alive." And then the next scene is like him with the cat. So it's great. As he's doing the rebuilding, they're like, "Also, well, this is going to take a while, and Richard Gill's not going to take this lying down." And in fact, he's having a board meeting of the Grand Trunk where they're sort of debating what they're going to do and how they're going to make money, and is this really a threat to them? And where the one last engineer who's really serious and who's still working for them is pleading for them, can we have the hour of the dead back, which is the hour where they would turn off the Klax Towers in the middle of the night to do maintenance? And they're like, no. That board meeting, I think, is where you really see how it's all working and what's going on with everybody and how gross they are, which I I really enjoyed that. And how everyone is twisted, like how Richard Gilt is the top of the pyramid. Like everyone is bad, but he's manipulating them. They know that they're doing the wrong thing, but he's got them even more, like under more control than he, than they realize. And you see his sort of double cross, like he gets approval from them for like the $20,000 that the guy asked for. Then a guy comes in, he's like, they'll only give you 2500 and he's like, but I think you should have 5000 And you see his, like, masterful manipulation of everyone and how, like, he's going to, like, profit from it. Because that could be really boring Phantom Menace level, like, finance, <laughs> business, bills, talk, like, <laughs> like that runs this plot. But they show in that very short scene, like, oh, this is the scam. This is why it's bad. I thought that was well-handled, potentially tedious bullshit. So, yeah. Yeah. That's good character stuff. And I like that you know, so the result of that, too, is that uh, Richard Gilt gets himself on the front of the newspaper for once uh, and has mm. just he's mostly talking about the, the clacks and how, you know, it'll all be back to running normally and everything will be great. And then they ask him a question about the post office. And he's like, well, we love the post office. And of course, we're not really in competition and we're so sorry that they've had a massive fire. And we will obviously be taking as many messages as we can and. and He's like reading between the lines and all the weasel words that he's using. And that's where he sort of goes, yeah. wow, I could learn from this guy if I still wanted to be a, a con artist. He's he's gross. But he also like starts swearing in the post office. And we haven't talked to him. Mrs. Macariot? Macalariot. Macadamianut? Mrs. Macadamianut. No, Mrs. Macalariot. So all of the post office families have come back to work at the post office. And she's the most significant one. She's like a sour face sort of supposed to look like a classic spinster angry librarian type woman and you get these hints of how it's like a genetic thing and how her grandmother trained her by making her suck lemons and how she's got her daughter to have a voice that could strip paint and it's just they're playing a role and she <laughs> sort of comes over and is like can you can you please use appropriate language in the in the post office and they're like oh it's about Rachel Gill she's like mm, okay you can you can just say he's a lying son of a bastard weasel that, that's all right but none of the not the k word not the not the s words <laughs> right. none she's of that got the whole list. <laughs> It's interesting. She's also the character who's very up in arms about uh, a golem named Mister being in the the women's toilet, and it's just it's a weird like it's a two thousand and four kind of premonition of what conservative people were mm. going to be complaining about mm. needlessly, you know, in twenty years time. That was very interesting, and particularly the fact that the pushback against her felt a bit like it didn't feel like anyone was on her side. They were just sort of mollifying this very conservative woman's feelings but saying it doesn't really matter where the dwarfs go to the toilet or where the golems go 
Uh, like, but you seem very up- upset about it, so we'll we'll reach some sort of agreement. But we'll call it Gollum Gladys, and that will sort it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was also, I guess, that also it's just like reaffirming the ideas about golems and are they alive? You know, like if a golem, mm. you know, golems. The the reason why golems don't have a concept of gender is because they don't really have a concept of. They do of existing, but of like they they don't see themselves. But they don't as, think of themselves as people. As people, and therefore, like the concept of of gender is useless to them. But to this woman, mm. no, you have to have a gender. We've got to be able to put you in this category. You know, we'll put a dress on you, and then you'll be somehow more human. And you know, because you've got this particular role to play. Yeah, and it was nice to read something like that in an older book, uh, which didn't feel like a relic of a bygone age. Like, it felt like something you could read, you, you could write today. You probably would have a bit more to say about it if you were writing it today, but it, it didn't feel out of place. Though it was nice to have her in what is quite a male-dominated industry. Yes, that's true. That's very true. That was a pun, come on. Oh, <laughs> male. But it was too real, Liz. It was too real. Dominated in... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I thought you were making a serious point there, and I was mulling it. I was trying to say it before the fire, but the opportunity never arose. We kept like veering away from it. I've been waiting for so long. (laughs) uh, (laughs) I have a question for you though. So there's a whole thing about are golems like sentient or are they tools? They're not. They have their own sort of sense of being. Mm. When Anghamera dies, he meets death and goes. He chooses to live in limbo. Do you think that all golems? do meet death when they die or is it only ones who have been freed or have found a sense of like outside like who aren't enslaved to like working at the bottom of a pump like do they inherently all have that or is that something that's gained by them oh is there an answer within like i mean there might be an in-universe canon answer not that i know of but i'm just curious about your take based on what we see on this book I thought, to me, it was a confirmation that golems are alive, not that they had earned their humanity. Like, I didn't see it as, like, a Robin Williams bicentennial man, like, (laughs) moment. It was more just, like, no, you are, you are human. Um, oh, we're not human, sorry, but you are alive and, um, Mm, you have lived a life and now you get an afterlife, whatever form that takes, because, you know, you lived and that was, yeah. Mm. That was mm. it. But it didn't seem that important to him that he had lived and, or that he had died. He was just, you know, it was more about existing in that state. Mm. Yeah. I agree. I think all golems go to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'd like to think that. Yeah, what they would experience when they die would be quite different maybe if they're not a free golem. But I think they still experience something because they clearly have some sort of soul. Yeah, the conversation wouldn't be as interesting between death and a golem who still thinks of themselves as a utility or a tool. Mm. But this is where we get to the huge challenge, which is after Guilt's been on the front cover of the paper, again, we we find out after the fact that when everybody's like, what are you going to do? Moist is like, I'm going to do the impossible. And then the next chapter starts with Veterinary, like sort of poking him with his shoe and saying, hey, get up what's what are you doing and he's gone to the paper and declared a challenge that he will take a message 
to where's he taking it to genua Genua? yeah so genua previously established in the books it's very very far away it's an interesting sort of place really but he's challenged the clacks he's going to do it he's going to take a message by mail faster than they can take it by clacks and he's also said and and someone of importance in the city like maybe the arch chancellor of the university will decide what the message is and i love that little detail which i'd completely forgotten until i was reading the book again and then when they tell the Arch-Chancellor about this, who is a beloved character from many previous books, he's like, oh, yes, get a copy of a book and get him to send that. <laughs> like, yes, that's genius. <laughs> um, and then Moist, when they when they have the big show showdown, like at the start of it, he tears a, a handful of pages out and says, just send these pages and I'll take the rest of the book and they can put it back together. Uh, and it's still going to take them ages to get started because they have to code all these pictures into a clax algorithms and stuff. It's like, oh, it's uh, I love that. It's so good. But um, the whole time, like as soon as they announced it, I was like, oh well, he surely got a plan. Even though I'd read it before, it was a long time ago, and I was like, what? What was his plan? Like, how does he pull this off? I can't remember. And as it slowly revealed that he doesn't have a plan, like always, he's just flying by the seat of his pants. I found it really stressful. I was like, how is he going to do this? I know he like, has to work out. Like, Richard Guild can't <laughs> win this thing. But I was like, how is he? And I was just, like, racking my brain trying to figure it out. And I I thought that was really good writing. Yeah. To make you sort of stress along with him. Mm. And no obvious solution in sight. And I love that he just keeps doing things. And you think, oh, is this going to be it? Is that going to be it? And he just keeps coming up with little things that are going to help him. Like, one of my favorite details is that he just gets someone to get him a broom and he paints stars on it. And he takes it with him to the stagecoach that he's going to ride in. And they tell him he can't take a broom. That would be cheating. That would be using magic. And only the Arch Chancellor spots that it's not really a magic broom. He's like, you don't really think you just paint stars on a broom and it can fly, do you? And he's like, no. Okay. And that is even not his big plan. But one of the things that is part of his plan, eventually, is all along the way, and we haven't mentioned them yet, he's been getting these secret messages telling him when and where the clax is going to go down in advance. And they're just signed the Smoking Gnu. (laughs) Uh, which is a great, it's a, such, so many puns on so many levels. And earlier in the book, when he first sort of almost dies in the mail slides trying to climb up to the top levels of the post office and he has his first vision, that's because he's seen there's a little clax tower on top of the post office. He's like, why do we have one? And it, we've also seen Grote going up to the roof to get these guys who stay up there who claim to be pigeon fanciers to pay rent because he's secretly renting them space on the roof because they have no income and he and Stanley have got to live on something. And it all comes together when he goes up there um, and uh, with Adora Bell's help, she sort of tips him off um, and meets the smoking gnu who are a bunch of, uh, I think they call themselves crackers. Is that what they call themselves (laughs) instead of hackers? Yeah. 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 Yeah, Because flashes was taken. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That was so good. Uh, and these guys, yeah, they're like the computer hackers of the world. They're, they're sort of working on a, a more advanced, less prone to breakages, faster version of the clacks. Which is what they were working on with the Dora's brother, and that's why he was killed off, because it was going to compete with, with the clacks. Yeah, and uh, Gilt sent Mr. Grile to kill him, make it look like an accident on the clacks tower. And she's sort of told him this whole story, and I love the meeting that he has with them, and they sort of try and hatch a plan to sort of slow down or ruin the clacks but in the end he he gets them not to send a message that is going to ruin the clacks although they have this they have a plan for this they've got a thing they call a woodpecker which is great like it really (laughs) reminded me 
of early keyboard designs. So the reason you have a QWERTY keyboard is that when people were originally typing, if they type too fast, the arms that would swing in and type the letter on the page would smack into each other. And so to slow people down and also to arrange the keys in a way where that would be unlikely to happen, they arranged the letters in the QWERTY arrangement. And so even if you're typing fast, the letters that you typed most often would not be next to each other, so they wouldn't be smacking into each other. And this reminded me of this because the woodpecker is this signal that they send that means that they open the shutters on one side of the thing and then they open the shutters on the other side of the thing and they do it repeatedly so that the um, thing that sends the messages rocks and falls off the top and ruins the tower, which I really <laughs> liked. Uh, yeah, that was very clever. Pratchett was a massive nerd, particularly for computer stuff. He loved technology. So I think he would have had a hugely, hugely good time figuring out how to make all this stuff work. Have you guys played the Clax board game? I have a copy, and I haven't played it, but I've heard it's good. All right, we're going to have to play. Yeah. We will have to play it. We're hoping we will do, like, some episodes about the board games. I've currently got three or four of them. I'm hoping to get the other couple of uh, Discworld-based board games. So, do people have to play that board game sitting up on the roofs of their houses? (laughs) 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 With a safety line clipped on. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Opening the shutters and... Yeah. I think they do. One in four people die playing it. Great. (laughs) Now I have to play it. I'm very excited. But comes back nicely to a point from earlier about Dorabelle not being a damsel in distress because she kind of provides the solution, like the elegant solution to it. Not like it's his idea, but um, instead of doing the woodpecker, he decides to send a message instead, which he couldn't have done without the notebooks she has at her house. So I thought Mm -hmm. that was kind of a nice sort of flipping Mm. of that. And I did like, too, that in that scene, he comes clean to her and doesn't have any expectations of anything from her, except that hopefully she will still help him take down the Grand Trunk. Like, he basically assumes that this is it for any relationship that we're going to have, because the reason that she's working for the Golem Trust is she got fired from the banking quirm she used to work for because she passed a forged bill, and he was the one who forged it. And he comes clean to her about that and tells her about his past as a con man. And she's like, okay. And he's like, but I, if you help me, I can still take him down. And she's like, all right. And you're not, even though I knew what happened in the end of the book, I was still at that point going, well, they might not get together now. <laughs> like, that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty full on. It does all sort of come to, like, we've, we've skipped past the big sort of showboating about heading off on the journey and tearing out the pages and stuff. But, like, I do like that all sort of, they come into this party at the Unseen University to see how it's all playing out. And they've got this basically, like, a video link where they go through this whole thing of explaining how it's orbs that point at the things. And there's a good Lord of the Rings joke about how they keep just seeing that fiery burning eye. And that's, <laughs> that's not great. what they're looking for. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's a few good Lord of the Rings references in this, actually. Yeah. But they finally get the video link working and Mr. Collarbone, who's out basically, he's been sent to the far reaches of the disc because he has bad breath. That's right. And the university doesn't want to be around him and he turns out to be allergic to all the things he's researching. He's having a grim time. He's like, I have received a message and it is from the clacks and the clacks people and all the finance people are like, see, look, we beat the post office. He's like, I don't think this is the message and it turns out that it's basically an accusation told in the voices of all the dead Claxman about all of the crimes of the Grand Trunk. Mm. And so you get to kind of see everyone reacting to it because all of the key players are in the room, like an Agatha Christie like, ending. Like everyone's there hearing the accusations being leveled and you see them all trying to like deny it or set up their insanity defense or reach a guilt just like just, just hecking off, just just, yeah. just 
ghosting. He's just gone. His Irish yeah. farewelling the way out of there uh, when he sees his numbers up. I kind of like that the solution to the race was to make the race moot. Like the race is irrelevant because there's a worse thing going on. So mm. I do find it strange that when he gets the guys, it's in the message that they're like, oh, that was evil. And he's like, yeah, take a real bastard of a guy to come up with that. I'm like, is it that like, am, am I a bad person if I think it wasn't that bad that he like sort of talked on behalf of the dead people? Because it was like, it wasn't dishonoring them. I don't think. In fact, it was trying to get justice for these people who've died. Like sure, it's putting words in their mouth, but it's not evil. I thought he would have done something like way worse. Yeah, no, I didn't think it was that bad either. Yeah, I, I get where you're coming from. I kind of bought into that everyone did think it was evil. And I, I kind of guess they felt, for me, it was they felt it was like he was pretending to be a medium who was talking to, you know, someone's dead relative. And even if he was doing it and being nice, because it wasn't genuine, it was gross. Mm. And I think also there was the the factor that he's misusing like, there is this legend that we get told along the way of the idea that, you know, these linesmen who die on the job are still alive in the clacks, that disrupting the signal on the clacks to send a message that's pretending to be them is also really distasteful, particularly to anyone who's worked on the clacks. So, I bought it from that angle that people found it really gross. But I agree that from a narrative perspective, like, you know, it really works, Um but in an ethics perspective as well, like if you think of it in a utilitarian way, like I think ethically he's got a sound argument for doing it because the net good, he gets justice for these people. He prevents future deaths by doing it. Like I think there's a really, like I could do this and sleep like a baby, like is what I'm saying. And I'm not, I don't think that makes me a bad person. <laughs> um, like okay. I'd be like, well, I don't know, but like, yeah. But the, as another point, there is kind of this chosen one thing throughout the whole book where they're like, Groat's the only one who's like, you know, there's the fabled like postmaster who's going to come back and fix everything and all the other board or whatever. Like, no, that's not, that's just you thinking that. But like, he does kind of like have all these things that make it seem like maybe there's another supernatural force like driving his hand. Like, yeah, he thinks he's just like winging it, but there are a lot, like he does see through to the old post office. And I know that killed all the other ones, but it didn't kill him it does feel like life has brought him to this point and maybe he is the chosen one. Like, I'm not sure if it's like he's choosing himself to be the chosen one or if it's actually like a prophecy being fulfilled. But like he got the exact right amount of money that was needed to fix the post office before he became the postmaster general. And so like part of me was like, maybe he is speaking for the dead in some way. Like he thinks he's making it up, but maybe it really is going through because they have that whole like prologue about the dead going around in circles and they do foreshadow like, is it he's latching onto this idea of their names passing on or is it really actually sort of passing through him and he thinks he's not actually doing it? Pratchett has left in the potential that it is actually something, a higher power is guiding him. That that doesn't feel like Pratchett to me, but I haven't read as much as you guys, but he struck me as someone who wouldn't rely on a sort of, you know, or is it sort of like subtext at the end. He tends to be someone who has fairly, even if he doesn't say it exactly what's going on, he tends to have fairly specific ideas about what is and isn't possible or happening within the stories. But I may be wrong. Well, I may be wrong. Like, it's just, or maybe I just really want it to be like a possibility because it does kind of feel like he's fated to be the postman, but that could be because veterinary detected the relevant skills in him because of his life experience and it lines up. So. Maybe I just want there to be more layers than there are. Maybe I'm just shrekking him. 
because he did kill like four other postmen, you know, four of them died. Like he, he wasn't his first, he was his fifth choice. So I don't know what he saw in him, but he didn't see it straight away. True. I think it's great that you have that reading, Liz, because I feel like the book constantly talks about what is choice and free will and, you know, do golems have their own sort of destiny? Even from the word go, it's about do you choose to be the postmaster general or do you choose to die by walking through a door? The whole book seems to be about the choices we make and also the choices he makes for redemption. So I like that you sort of read that ambiguity and that, like, could it just be a chosen one thing or is he always doing his own choosing throughout the entire story? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the possibility is there, but I think the heavy implication is that if it is, it's kind of incidental. Although, I mean, there are things that happen in the later books that suggest he has definitely won the favour of the gods in this book by getting everyone to think they should go and pray because they might get themselves (laughs) $150,000 and essentially turning all of the uh, major temples in the city into uh, lotteries. Um, <laughs> uh, which, uh, like, one of them even which has Which Casanova sign... also did. Oh, really? Casanova was involved in inventing the lottery. I did not know sure. that. There you go. Oh, but, cool. uh, but yeah, like, one of them even has a banner up that says, it could be you, which was a slogan of the British lottery at one point. So... <laughs> so the freelance priestess? Yeah. Who does a bit of work on the side for Annoia? Yeah. Oh, that was great. But I also like that he gets all of the books... He doesn't really have enough evidence to convict Guilt or the other board members, but he has enough detail that it sounds plausible, which gives Vetinari the excuse to shut down the trunk and investigate it properly. And there's that great bit with all the forensic accountants at the end where they've got all of the books and documents out on the floor and they're rearranging them into little piles with circles and eventually they get the diary that Crispin Horsefryer gave to Richard Gilt and they put that in and that means all the circles rearrange and get bigger and smaller and change around. I love that scene. I would love to see that on the screen. I don't think it's in the TV adaptation, but it's yeah, very, very cool. <gasps> There's a TV adaptation? There is. Yeah, you uh, could have just watched that and not have to was read it. Any, was it any good? It, it is I actually seen it. pretty good. What? Who, who said they haven't seen it? Liz, you haven't seen it? No, because it wasn't available. Like when like, I couldn't get access to it when it first came oh, out. Well, we've got and to then watch it then now. It's just gone away from me. So because it has a guy like who's like really good. I remember he's in that like in that coupling show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Should we should we do the last scene so we can get to questions? Because there's so much. Like I could probably go through this page by page and do like twenty minutes on each. But like because there's, there's so much in here. But should we? Just I mean, go you know, to- it, you know, it's a good book when you can't fit all of it into a podcast that regularly goes for two and a quarter hours. <laughs> so you know, we're doing <laughs> we're doing all right. But yes, the, we should get to the end uh, and how it all finishes up because, you know, Richard Gilt does run off. The other co-conspirators get arrested uh, and investigated by Vetinari and uh, and everyone. Mr. Pump gets a new chem and that is sending him after Richard Gilt, who seems to have done a bit better in terms of escape than Moist did. But I mean, he's the better con man, as has been said all along. Um, he had a head and start as well. That all the financiers have like taken out hits on him from the Assassin's Guild. But it circles back to the scene where he finds himself in a seat in front of veterinary and he's insisting that he's someone else. He's like, no, no, I'll give you a choice. And I found this really interesting. He like offers him a job. He's like, the, the mint needs new eyes, fresh blood. We think this will be interesting. And it's, and I thought that was really fascinating because earlier on, he does do this sort of little monologue about what money is and what people think money is about. So he does have the ability to do that. And but he immediately, when he's offered the choice, he chooses the door, like as is implied. 
Reach is supposedly the better con man, but Moist is the only one who's suspicious enough to go and check the door, whereas Reacher has this inner confidence or belief that he's better than other people. So he doesn't even do that. He just goes, I'm going to call your bluff and just goes out the door and he's dead. And you're like, oh, yeah, what I a did, dick. <laughs> to, to be honest, I, I did find the whole, oh, he's, he's, you know, we are of a kind stuff a little on the nose. Like the idea of, you know, the business person who is the real con artist and the, the criminal isn't, you know, is it just felt, because they kept coming back to it, it felt a little tired to me. Like, yeah, we we get it. You know, like capitalism is bad. <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah, yeah. No, we understand. Manip- Wait, what? Yeah, manip- <laughs> manipulating the system. Um, and and yeah. yeah, I got a little bit tired of that. That's fair enough. That's very fair. Am I allowed to um, say I didn't like things in a, in a Terry Pratchett podcast? Or will the yeah, no, you are encouraged to share your your true opinion. We have often said we didn't like things, not in this episode. No, that's not true. <laughs> we have had a few. Yeah, I mean, I am in hate with the fact that we've said moist so many times. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's in the same category as fecund. Like, it's... The what? what? You know, fecund? Like, it means fertile, like F-E-C-U-N-D. Like, we had, no. back in back in student no. media days, we had a puzzle page where one of the editors would have, it, like, uncomfortable word of the week. And, like, moist was one of them, and fecund was another one. And he'd yes. come up with, like, a creative reason of why it's so uncomfortable. And for fecund, it was because it sounds like two other, like, four-letter yes, taboo words. That's oh, that's my new least favorite. I have no problem with moist, but fecund. Ah, no, thank yeah. you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, You're welcome for that. <laughs> well, I don't like the word discharge. Yeah, that's, that's it's like in the, it's only good. I yeah, mean, it's only good when you're getting discharge. out of hospital, right? No. Oh, wait. No. Yes. Sorry. That's like, you're in hospital for a discharge. That's, oh, that's not what I meant. That's like the worst possible use. Can't even get that right. That's okay. Well, look, we have got to the end of the book. We've had to rush through it a little bit, a uh, bit more than we normally would because it is, there's a lot there a and it is a long book. Big boy. But, uh, but are there any, before we get onto our listener questions, are there any favorite bits that we have missed? Like any, any favorite quotes that you want to read out or any, uh, bits that you really enjoyed that we haven't talked about. I really liked the brothers that run the male coaches. We didn't get to talk about them, but they're a couple of colourful characters that I think are worth a shout out. They, they were great. Um, I really loved the the wizards that we meet in this book. In a mm. previous episode of the podcast, I talked about the fact that apart from the main faculty, we very rarely meet any wizards who aren't evil antagonists. And I'd totally forgotten about the wizards in this book, Pelk. And Goiter, the one who's uh, taken an early death, which is very Douglas Adams-y kind of is spending a year dead for tax reasons kind of, you know, scenario, <laughs> which I really, I really, really liked. Uh, I thought those were, those two guys were great. And the fact that he's like, he's got a fake beard because, you know, you're expected to have a beard, but he doesn't really like having a beard. Yeah, I really love those guys as well. I like the whole satire in his writing. Sometimes he can just sum up a whole concept in a couple of sentences. One of my favourite quotes was, what kind of man would put a known criminal in charge of a major branch of government, apart from, say, the average voter? (laughs) (laughs) Just made me laugh out loud. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm just going to read a bit out that um, I basically can read all of the book to you and be like, this is my favourite quote because I have like three pages of favourite quotes, but I'm choosing just one because I really think it sums up a clever thing that he did. So it's, um, 
And then it occurred to one or two of the board that Jovial, my friend in the mouth of Reader Guilt, so generous with his invitations to little tips, his advice and his champagne, was beginning in its harmonics and overtones to sound just like the word pal in the mouth of a man in an alley who was offering cosmetic surgery with a broken bottle in exchange for not being given any money. And there's just such a beautiful way to describe a mugging, like yeah. in the opposite <laughs> way to ha- like, like if you don't give me any money, I'll, I'll give you a cosmetic surgery. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's clever. And I think that just shows how the cogs of his brain work. So he's doing like characterization and summing up mugging in a weird way, all in like a little bit of a thing. It's just, it's very good. Mm. Oh, and also, um, don't ask about the, the goddess soul, like C-Z-O-L, whatever. Oh, like yeah. the Mrs. Cake from Ang Hamrad's <laughs> old postal days. Oh, Ang Hamrad's whole thing about being a messenger and how all the people that it was a messenger for have like slid into the sea thousands of years <laughs> ago. That was so great. I loved all of that. I had a few favorite gags. I can't read them all out, but one thing I really loved was uh, Moist's constant like refrain of like, got to keep moving, got to keep running. And there's the bit where Grote says to him, but you can't, you got to walk before you can run. And he says, no, run before you can walk. <laughs> and he's like, yes. Uh, I thought that really summed up his character. Uh, and some of the other stuff he says when he's like being all grandiose and he, and he says like, but can you write Swalk on a clax and stuff like that? I really love that. Um, one of the, my favorite bits though, favorite one line gags is when Adora Bell is at the post office and they've already started their kind of spiky flirting stuff going on. Uh, and he's got his pictures of the postage stamps out and she looks at them and she says, what is this? Do you carry your etchings with you to save time? <laughs> that was <laughs> yeah. such a good line. She's so clever and so funny. I really, really like that. Um, and uh, just also, uh, one last thing I want to shout out to, there's a lot of very Douglas Adamsy bits in this book, one of which is when they're introducing the wizards at the library, they talk about people thinking about what would happen if the whole universe had been destroyed and recreated in a flash, and then there's a footnote that just says, again, <laughs> indicating it's happened before, which is also the same section of the book where he introduces the eight Discworld virtues, uh, which we will come back to because there's a listener question about them. Uh, but I look, I could go on. I could go on and on. I love all the stuff about the the clacks and how they work. I love all the stuff that Mr. Pump says, particularly when he's telling Moist what he thinks of all his crimes and he's talking about that's the function of a letter. And there's so much good stuff in this book. So, so much stuff. I managed to shoehorn all my favorite bits in into the conversation earlier. Like Stanley's love of pins being transferred onto a love of stamps was my, was my highlight. It just felt like Pratchett had just gone to so much effort to set that up and then to just just for that one payoff and it was just beautiful when it happened. Yeah, it was magnificent. All right, well, we should get into some listener questions and we got loads, so we're not likely to be able to get through them all, but we'd like to thank everyone who sent them in. This is obviously a very beloved book, one of Pratchett fans' favourites, and that's reflected in the number of questions we got. But let's see how many we can get through. Liz, um, where are we going to start with the questions? All right, so I'd like to start with one from Lachlan via Discord. Lachlan has mentioned a favorite bit that was also my favorite bit. So Lachlan says, the reference to the agation wall as a defense to insider trading is the most niche joke I've ever encountered <laughs> yeah. that appealed to me. It's probably my I favorite joke in Discworld, which I thought was great. Um, but the question is, why should we not ask about Mrs. Cake? Oh, yeah. So this is from the post office motto, which is like, we don't deal with these things that do not ask about Mrs. Cake. Who is a character who does appear in some other Discworld books. So there is that. Isn't Mrs. Cake trouble? She's the psychic who ruins temples, isn't she? By, yeah. you know, revealing secrets and 
generally knowing more than she should and kind of breaking down all the institutions of the the church. But she's like a church lady. That's sort of the feel I get, like a kind of volunteer yeah. church lady with a big handbag who just does. comes in but happens yeah. to be able to talk to dead people. She, the pyre is three of people. <laughs> the pyre is three of people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. So I'm sorry to put us through some questions because I want to see as many as we can get, but we can't be able to do them all. This one's from a chew and sneeze via Twitter. Tubzo and Blissonomy, got any thoughts? These are two of the Discworld virtues. Now, there are eight Discworld virtues. Interestingly, it's not just these two that are not the same as the other ones. So, just just for reference, the real world's seven virtues, they both have hope, charity, and fortitude. But in the real world, we have faith, justice, temperance, and prudence. But those four do not appear on the Discworld. On the Discworld, they have hope, charity, fortitude, silence, patience, chastity, tubzo, and blasonomy, and then there's a footnote saying no one really observes those anymore because no one can remember what they are. But what <laughs> what on earth could they be based on the name? What do we think the the virtues of Tubzo and blasonomy could be? Isn't there also like a statue where like blasonomy is holding like a turnip or something? There's like, got a kettle like a and weird some Im- parsnips. Yeah, <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> what 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 do you think this could be? So for blasonomy, I would assume it's like do not study why you're happy too closely. Nice. Oh, like don't look a gift horse in the mouth kind of deal. Yeah, but like looking at the word itself um, and trying to extract that to an ethical standpoint, I'd be like, yeah, don't don't think about happiness too deeply. Mm. Doesn't really explain the the vegetables. Oh, unless they make you very happy. Does not turnip soup make you happy? D- uh, turnips don't make me happy, no. I think it's don't be too wholesome, you know, don't be too um, down to earth and, and too rustic. That's what I got from Tubzo anyway. Uh-huh. I like that. Are they? Okay. This is like my literary arts degree coming through, but Damn. they're nonsense words and they're there because they're funny and, <laughs> uh, and ridiculous. And are yes. we just like, are we Humpty Dumpty in, uh, through the looking glass trying to explain what every word in Jabberwocky means? Um, and <laughs> well, yeah, but, the fun. but hopefully we're having fun doing it. Okay, I just—I don't want to be that guy who's like, oh, well, actually, uh, Tubzo is from the the Greek word Tabopolis, and it's a, it's a, you know, I mean, it's kind of, of what I did with blasphemy, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like I like that idea though that of making accepting happiness into a virtue. I'm also interested in what should we read into the fact that Pratchett has replaced faith, justice, temperance, and prudence with silence, patience, and chastity. Like, that these are the virtues he thinks that the Discworld people uh, exalt above all others. Or ignore above all others. Well, Isn't yes. that kind of like what yeah. we do with virtues? Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. It's about ignoring restraint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I'm going to merge a few questions together from Rebecca Mann via Facebook, which has a follow-up from Caroline Cardinaletti. And also Molokov via Discord. So it's about how much of what was going on do you think Veterinary knew? Was his ultimate aim to get the Grand Trunk into public hands and away from the corrupt team led by Richard Gilt? And was using Moise as a new postmaster as a sure bet to Veterinary or another potential chance? So that taps into the question of is Moise supposed to be like a successor to Veterinary in some ways? And also Mm -hmm. how much was Veterinary moving pieces around the board? 
Big question because it's three questions. Yeah. Well, I, I just wanted to say I did enjoy that Rebecca asked, do you think he was sure Moist would succeed? And then Caroline said, oh, I thought you meant, do you think Veterinary was sure Moist would succeed him, as in he would take over as patrician one day? And we have talked mm. about this on the podcast before that, you know, what is Veterinary's plan? Like, he's the patrician for a very long time over the span of time that the books occupy. And he's he's not the kind of guy who would not have a plan for who's going to come after him. And some people have suggested maybe it is Moist. We can also tie in a question from Joel via Discord, which is, how do you feel about what hands a trunk ends up in at the end of the book? So that's all kind of like a big, big picture questions, all of those together. Yeah, okay. Nick has thrown me into a spin by the, because the, I didn't I didn't think about the four other people dying before. And I was like, oh yeah, veterinary's got this. He's like controlling it. But he like got four people killed before he settled on his plan. So maybe he hasn't got this as hard as I thought he did. I think though, there is there is an assumption that a genius or a mastermind is someone who had it planned from the start that everything was all set up like dominoes and they just set everything in motion and using their genius skills it all worked but i mean much like moist there's a certain degree of adapting and flying by the seat of your pants and putting pieces in play and seeing what happens and then adapting to those circumstances which he shows in the game talking about that and having also watched queen's gambit i know that you um often have to adapt on the fly to your opponent's moves so i think he knew what he was doing but he also knew that there were certain things that were out of his control and he was going to have to adapt to them yeah i mean if it's about a puppet master setting dominoes in motion at what point did the dominoes start being set in motion? It doesn't have to be from the start. The start of the dominoes could be after the fourth person died. That's when the plans <laughs> get set in motion. Yeah. I mean, I think he doesn't know what's going on inside the post office because, you know, it, it it's never... One thing that's never entirely clear is how long ago it kind of fell into disrepair. Like, Groat's been there for a long time, but Stanley's not very old. So it could be anywhere between, like, five or ten years and maybe... 30 or 40 years, like given the age of the elderly postmen. So it's really... But it has to be like, like, how old would he have been when he's a junior postman if he's from a postal family? He would have been quite young, like I just said, like 15 to 18, and assumedly he's like in his 50s now, perhaps. So I figured that was kind of the timeline. I still mm-hmm. find it... It's a For me, it's a little bit like the gap between the prequel Star Wars films and the, the original trilogy films. It's just not long enough. Like, it doesn't feel right. <laughs> It, yeah. it's, it seems like a stupidly short period of time for everyone to have forgotten how to send a letter or that that was important. So I, yeah. I, I just don't, I'm not sure about that. But I think however long it was, what was going on inside the post office was a mystery. And because it was like accidental deaths, he didn't get a report from those four previous people that he sent in, even the one who was like a dark clerk, like the, the, um, mm. Assassin's Guild, uh, person. So I think, yeah, I agree with Nick. I think, the true genius is not that he had it all planned out at the start. It's that he could make it work by changing his plans as he went. Timeline question, though. So, like, um, Adora's brother dies one month before um, the execution of Albert Spangler is supposed to happen, and there's been five weeks' worth of postmaster deaths. Does that mean that before he died, veterinary had this plan to kick the post office into gear? Yeah. I think that works because it... You know, that killing John Deerhart is not the start of the bad stuff that Richard Gilt and the others are doing with the Grand Trunk. Like, they've been running mm. it into the ground for quite some time before mm. that. Hmm. And how do you feel about where the Grand Trunk ended up, whose hands it ended up in? 
So like in the hands of Moist and a doorbell, more or less. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say good. I feel good about it. Yeah, I feel good about it. Is it still to be run as a business? That's a little bit up in the air, isn't it? Because the idea is that the post office is kind of offered to take it over and then they're like, no, I think it should be. Yeah. So I I think that's left a little bit up in the air in this book. Because there's sort of a sense I got that a lot of it was publicly owned versus privately owned and what is Mm. better. And the clax is in most situations better than the post office. What the post office has going for it is you can't write swalk on a clax. Exactly, yeah, but it's it's the it's it's the romance of it, and whereas the you know the clax is just much more efficient, and uh, you know with exceptions. But why it's bad in inverted commas, like why it's not good in this book, is because it's run by evil capitalists, and why the post office is good is because it's the people's post office, but it's never really because, you know, no one ever wins the race and they kick, you know, it's more about let's get these bad people out of the, the, uh, the company, uh, which they succeed in doing. But then everything kind of, you know, the post office keeps trundling along, the clacks will keep trundling along and the uh, systematic issues underlying a capitalist system are still in place. Mm, Thanks, true. Bernie Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, you know, I was just I was just looking up that bit of the book actually, and it reminded me of one last thing I wanted to say that I really liked that I, we hadn't mentioned, which is that Reacher Gilt's parrot, uh, who's a cockatoo, says twelve and a half percent, which is an eighth. <laughs> it's it's like a it's like an accountant version of pieces of eight. Uh, oh, nice! I really that's that brilliant. Was, that was very clever. I like that a lot. This one's from Ian Nichols via Twitter. What is CLATCH an acronym for? Um, so Nick already answered with a good one on Twitter. Did you want to say it? I'd rather not. I'd rather not <laughs> say right. it. See us on Twitter. We will retweet it. No, <laughs> you can I, I, find it there. Nick has lowered Amturgid coming home. Um, <laughs> but so, I, really but so it, rude. It was a, yeah, it was a really sort of lively thread. You know, everyone was tweeting and having a great old time and chatting about what CLATCH might. And then I said that. And just no one responded to, no one had anything. And I like literally just logged off Twitter for the day. I like, no one said anything. It was just a real conversation stopper. So it just sounded like I quietly like you were enjoyed it. I was stop. just like, <laughs> sorry. So it's happened again. <laughs> oh, no. See? Oh, I didn't want to read it. Oh dear. I mean, I, I tried uh, okay. to come up with one and I, I started out quite romantic. I thought it could be like kisses, love, and that something, something. I, I, I couldn't quite make it work. I wanted it to be really nice as a kind of an antidote. To I, I just don't think you can beat that though, because like clash is such a harsh word. Like that sounds exactly right. Like it's to me, the it is very perfect good answer. It is very so, good. Yeah. I don't think you can actually beat that. So. All right, so this one's from Rin via Facebook. Um, what round world problem, so like what earth problem would you have Moist fix for us? Well, I mean, you could start with the actual with post office, yeah, post which we'll, we'll get onto a bit more. But I, surely there's some other things as well. I mean, elections in America, that'd be a good one. Democracy, can he fix <laughs> that? I don't know. I'm going to be a killjoy again. I don't think we want people like Moist solving problems. Like it's... <laughs> People like Moist is why we have problems in the first place. It's like fast-talking, 
like, yeah. you know, charming people who don't have any sort of long-term planning. Like, this is, he's like a, you know, he's an Elon Musk kind of guy, you know. Like yeah, just, he'll totally know. play personality politics over policy. Yeah. That's a fair point. We need veterinary. Veterinary all the way. <laughs> veterinary yeah, team, team veterinary, hashtag. <laughs> He'd make a really good scout leader, though, I think. <laughs> Moist von Lipvig would. Yeah. Yeah. Like, his talents would be wasted, but that would be an amazing troop to be in. Uh, you know, I, I researched this for our last episode, and um, there's not a lot written about what books Pratchett would have written if he'd had a bit more time, but he it, it is uh, known that he had plans for a book that was all about the establishment of the Discworld version of the Boy Scouts. So, and I don't know whether Moist von Lipvig would have featured in that, but uh, yeah. All right. Well, to counter that question from read by Twitter, what could you get away with in a gold suit? Being a human statue. (laughs) That's pretty much it. First thing that comes to mind. Um, In fact, I'm pretty sure I've seen someone do it in a, in a gold, uh, in a gold suit. Uh, We should actually, we should find some really great pictures. The the last Australian Discworld convention, which was uh, last year, 2019, the theme was going postal and there were so many good, um, golden postmaster suits. It was great. It was really nice to see them. Isn't isn't there a human statue in a gold suit in um, Who Gets Murdered in um, Hot Fuzz? Yeah, I think there is. So you get away with being murdered. <laughs> you get away with that. <laughs> you, oh, you know what else? You, you could get away with being a victim of um, uh, Ernst Goldenfinger. Oh, yeah. Yes. If he, if he you didn't take your clothes away. off first and he painted the gold paint all over your suit as well yeah. as your face. You could get away with hiding inside the cosplay of a giant Wonka chocolate bar. <laughs> you could be the golden <laughs> ticket. The golden ticket. <laughs> yep. Hello at me. That's great. Get out of bed, Grandpa Joe. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 is a, that is a story that some parts of it really do not bear any kind of close examination. That's that's where you need a bit of blissonomy. You don't question the happiness you get from watching Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I'll stop no. being so tubso about yeah, things. Yeah, so tubso. Just... <laughs> yeah. I don't know. As performers, like, do you reckon, like, if someone in a gold suit just confidently walked backstage, would you stop them? Like, no. in any performance no, space? No, you wouldn't. Confidently? No. It's, you know, it's, you get away with, I don't know what, so much that you get away with things, but people would not remember what you look like. And I think, I think that's touched on in the book. Mm. And it's a similar kind of thing where, uh, later writers in Doctor Who have explained the, the Sixth Doctor's coat, which is this sort of amazing collection of all these clashing colors and fabrics. Uh, and they explain in one of the books, like someone goes, I know he picked it so that if he, if he needed to go in disguise, he could just take it off and then no one would know what he looked like because they'd all just be describing the coat. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> and that's what a gold suit would do for you. Same thing. <laughs> They'd be like, get the guy in the gold suit. And you'd be like, he went that way <laughs> with it in your bag. <laughs> you'd be fine. <laughs> you'd get away with a lot in that sense. You'd probably sneak into the Oscars. You'd probably get into any hipster wedding. You'd like, They'd just be like, oh, that's like so-and-so's boyfriend. Like, yeah. <laughs> or the yeah, races. Yeah. Go to the races. Oh, Melbourne God. Cup. Can't believe you haven't seen yeah. any gold suits there already. Yeah, I mean, they're, maybe they're saving the awful golden plans. But um, this one comes from Sven by Discord. What was the most bizarre experience you've had with the postal service? Oh, 
I had this weird thing when I lived in a share house that my dad was mailing me an important piece of paperwork from Adelaide and it took longer to arrive than it should have before all the postal service was really bad. And then I finally got it and it had been opened, but it had been like stapled shut through like, there was like an envelope and it like stapled it shut through like both the envelope and the paper itself. And I couldn't figure out at all what had happened there like if it had gotten like delivered to a neighbor and they accidentally opened it and then they're like oh well better close this but like what is the thought process that goes oh i better seal up this envelope better like chomp through all of it with a stapler it was just really strange so like as far as bizarre post office experiences go there's there's that one i still haven't figured it out so if anyone else says like an explanation i'd love to hear it (laughs) tweet that to us All of my postal service experiences have just been grimly depressing. Um, you know, like just Uh trying to, you know, I do mail outs because, you know, I do a lot of work in schools and the best way to get to teachers is just to send them a letter to the school because you can't phone them or email and you have to send them a letter. And so I'll be looking for 500 envelopes with stamps already on them, you know, the prepaid ones. And you cannot buy 500 stamp addressed envelopes at one post office and I've had to like drive around in like oh no <laughs> the last five you know like literally driving from post office to you can't even order them it's impossible to order 500 off the Australia Post website and so my experiences have just been sadly driving from post office to post office to get enough envelopes to do the one thing that I want to do which is send 500 letters is this because they expect if you've got 500 letters you're going to open an account where they just come and collect them without stamps on them and then they stamp yes. them all for you and you pay for that service? Is that why? Yeah, but I only do it like two times a year and opening an account is a whole oh, yeah. extra layer of bureaucracy and fees and charges and you still have to put you still have to put a stamp on them that says postage paid Australia and print them and I just want to stick little envelope labels on. And you can see, like, there's nothing interesting about what I'm saying right now. But <laughs> uh, I mean, but I've been you, talking about I mean, this for maybe a minute, I, and your eyes are glazing over. Imagine what it would like to be me in the story. I, no. I think that's the definition for tubso. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's the literal tubs of the post things. It's the thing that they bring if you open an account. And you think, do not open an account with them, because I... Like when I was editing a magazine, I ended up this sort of, is it Sisyphus that's always pushing the rock up the hill yeah. forever? Yeah. Mm. Or like, to, and, but also like Sorcerer's Apprentice where you'd, you'd make the appointment for them to like bring the tubs and then bring them and you'd fill them with the magazines and then you'd be like, oh, okay, so like this time they're going to come and pick it up. And instead of picking it up, they'd come with the same amount of tubs again and deliver you more tubs that you didn't need. And there'd be like a whole thing and there'd be tubs piling up and they're not taking away the things that need to be mailed. And there's also no phone number to directly call the post office because they, that would cause too much trouble. So like you can never actually like complain about a specific thing. You have to go through the central line. That's just like people who have no power or control over anything. And you just the tubs are there and the mail is there and it's not going away and there's too big to carry and now it's five o'clock and they're closed. So that's tubs there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's another story that's just grim and sad and not, (laughs) you know, because the person who asked that question was going, oh, yeah, one, you know, expecting us to go, oh, yeah, one time I opened my electricity bill and there was a dead rat, you know, like something that's like horrifying, (laughs) but no, it's just. 
Are you saying my staple story wasn't very exciting? No, it was sad. <laughs> and just like my story was even like at least yours had magazines. Mine was just empty envelopes. <laughs> like it's just <laughs> impressive. Well, for our last question, I think I'll take us to a lighter but more horrifying note um, in a different way. This is from Neil Weber via Twitter. Can you come up with a more unsettling name than Moist Von Lipwig? Mm. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, well. What was that word that you said before? Fecund. Fecund. I, Fecund. I was thinking, yeah. like, that's going to be in there. That, that, could be a, that could be a Terry Pratchett character's name. You know. Fecund, Fecund Von Discharge. <laughs> Gross. Yeah. Okay, that's not oh, right. I don't like that go. name. Because that literally would mean fertility from discharge. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's, that's, that is... Oh, oh, technically can't correct. Can't even bring myself to say it. Yeah, <laughs> oh, no. that's what I was going to say. That's what I made myself not say. Um, but that's fair. Clatch. Clatch. Oh, no. Oh. Well, um, that's 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 all our questions, Liz. We, I mean, we did get more, as we said, but I don't. We we just can't fit so them many all great in today. Ones. It's this is a very this is going to be a very long episode, but that kind of brings us to the end. Nick and Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for suggesting such a great book to read. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Like I th- I've been saying for a while, I think it's a good way in as well. And I know it's not your first one, but I think it's like a good one. It's a gateway drug. Yeah. yeah. But not, you know, not being familiar with Discworld, Lawrence, uh, only having read that one book a long time ago, do you feel like this is a good first book for someone to read? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If, I mean, you don't have to know about the world to appreciate the parody and the, and the satire in it. And also just the chockers, chock full of, um, one liners. It's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, I think it cleverly uses a lot of stuff from from the previous books, but without you needing to know that that's what's happening. But there's lots of little nice little Easter eggs and references for people who do know them. So yeah, I think it works really well. Uh, but mm. yeah, but thank you both very much. Um, what are you up to at the moment? Like, I I know this is a question that I don't like asking in the year <laughs> of 2020, but I do know that both of you are doing things. Like Nick, you have you published a book this year. I did, yeah. I have a new book. It is in bookshops right now. Uh, it is called Tricky Nick, and it is the completely true story of how I became the greatest magician in the world. So it's uh, it's aimed at young readers, and it's a book about my adventures as a boy magician. I am really excited to read it. I still haven't read it yet. I feel I feel like this is an omission on my part, but I'm excited. I'm excited <laughs> to get into it. And uh, Lawrence, you've been doing some performances. Yeah, I've done some online virtual performances because you know as similar to places all around the world theaters are currently closed due to a pandemic that seems to be happening um so yeah i've done some virtual performances of my show called connected which is kind of a show dedicated to people who are in lockdowns or people experiencing um being physically separated from one another and um i use a lot of uh mind games experiments um mentalism to kind of bridge that gap between people and complete strangers by doing a show via uh, through a screen essentially so yeah it's a zoom show and i have seen very cool. the final show and it is very good so next time it's on you should check it out where can people find both of you if they want to find out more about uh what you've been up to and what you're doing next on the internet. Yeah. Um, follow me at Facebook. Uh, I'm sure that you'll put some links 
in the We in the will. Show notes we'll have links to yeah. both of you in the show notes. Absolutely. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Don't have a TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. Is that just slang for clacks? Is that what that means? Yeah, clacks. It's just clacks. <laughs> clacks with a bun. It's semaphore with dancing. <laughs> great. That's great. Um, and look, we'd also like to thank all of you for listening and for supporting the podcast. You can do that uh, on our website if you like. You can find out all about how you can support us. You can do that with actual money if you want to, or you can do it just by telling a friend who likes Terry Pratchett books, or maybe a friend who doesn't yet like Terry Pratchett books, and you can recommend them one and then say, and if you like it, listen to this podcast. Whatever you do, we appreciate that you're listening, and we hope that you will tune in next time when we're going to make up for the fact that we haven't been able to do any live shows this year by doing a short story episode. It's also so I can have a bit of a break as I'll have just moved house. But we'll have our first international guest, Mark Burrows, author of the biography The Magic of Terry Pratchett. And together we'll be talking about the short story from 1998, The Sea and Little Fishes, the third Discworld short story featuring The Witches. You'll find it in the short fiction anthology, A Blink of the Screen. But until next time, please remember that you can't seal a podcast with a kiss. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guests Nicholas J. Johnson and Lawrence Lung. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat38. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.